0: This is Abby Martin. This is a disclaimer to say that psychedelic drugs do not universally work the same for everybody. They can cause psychosis at high enough doses, and they can be life-changing in ways that are not always intended or desired. Psychedelics should be used responsibly and with extreme caution.
1: What you want you get what you need uh, I don't think you're gonna spend a, a very long involved with these things at a deep level without scaring your socks off uh, eventually well one of the great things about these psychedelic teachers is that they are so gentle with beginners and then the flip side of that coin is they are so unforgiving with veterans. And uh, I don't know, I mean, I have hard trips, often. And the way I explain it to myself is, you know, I pretty much accept Rupert Sheldrake's notion of the morphogenetic field, and uh, uh, feel like the psychedelics amplify the morphogenetic field of the totality. and. You know, why shouldn't I have difficult trips? The totality is in such a weird state of turmoil. I mean, you couldn't pay me to take five grams of mushrooms in the present circumstances, simply because I can feel the riptides in the historical dimension just churning everything into white water. I mean, I'd stay out of the water till uh, it dies down a little.
0: So Robbie, we're going to start off this episode by picking up where we left off, talking about the underground rave scene, how this scene harnessed so much of the psychedelic explosion in the 90s. It is really hard to wrap your mind around these merry little elves in real life who had these uh, satchels full of (laughs) DMT crystals and Uh pure grade (laughs) Mm -hmm. compounds like... Derivatives of LSD and MDMA, and that that is exactly what was happening, Robbie. And you were right up in there. And I have many stories of, you know, how fucking crazy this time was. Just as a bystander, watching you enter this world, <laughs> um, and really use it as the foundation of a lot of, you know, a, a jumping-off point for a lot of my artistic exploration, a lot of my curiosity oh. with psychedelics. I thank you for. God only knows how fucking generic I would be if I didn't what? have your incredible influence of music, art, and culture. Oh, despite where I was living,
2: oh, <laughs> that's, so, that's so flattering. That's nice. It's nice completely things. true. Well, it's completely true, Robbie. I mean, I think one of the, the interesting things for me approaching all this is that I was on the internet. You know, very hardcore into the internet. I wasn't a hacker. I wasn't like into that kind of stuff. I wasn't a programmer, but I was just into finding out stuff online, like obscure shit. Music, bands, you know, electronic musicians. So I felt like I sort of had a, I was ahead of the curve from most other people my age in that regard. And I do think I don't think people realize who were like really into psychedelic drugs that they would there were some obvious tells they were giving off like you you know, I started randomly running into people i would be like that dude grows mushrooms or <laughs> I thought I was like a badass researching, you know, psychedelic cacti on the internet, knowing where to get like San Pedro cactus, which was the legal, you know, still legal uh, mescaline containing cactus uh, other than peyote, which is illegal in the United States now. Uh, I remember driving around with my friend and I think this was sometime around like 2000 or 1999. And I drove by a guy's house in the suburbs that had a San Pedro forest in his backyard that was like. Twenty feet tall, like hundreds of towering San Pedro. So I was like, hmm. I was like, I'm just gonna randomly knock on this guy's door and say, I really like admire your cactus. Like, can you tell me a little bit about them? Sort of play dumb. And as soon as he, I mentioned the cactus, he actually thought I was a fed, <laughs> and <laughs> he got like super paranoid and started like sort of grilling me. And I was like, no, no, no. I just read a lot about this stuff. I recognize a cactus could tell you probably are not just into the you know the looks of it that you might know what it is and he's like he's like you're the only person who's ever driven by my house in the 30 years I've lived here who's ever said anything about what those cactus are
0: holy shit. and then he's
2: like come into my yard so he brings me to his backyard and in the middle of this towering forest of San Pedro cactuses he has poppies not poppies something that was more exciting to me at the time because I had never seen peyote yeah, I only yeah, seen yeah. pictures of it so Holy he has shit. what looked like about five or six trunks of a San Pedro, like kind of tied together with a rope and all spliced at about five feet off the ground or four feet off the ground. And on top of this, maybe, you know, a large dinner plate type size. He had the biggest like bulb of peyote I've ever seen, like even in pictures. Like it looked like an immaculate, museum quality piece of like a peyote cactus. It was like the size of like a giant contest winning pumpkin. It was crazy. I just didn't even know. So the first time I'd ever seen peyote, which was already shocking from a total stranger bringing me to his backyard. It's just like enormous size. Like I didn't even know it existed like this. Being able to know a little bit about, you know, more than the average person about psychedelics and plant psychedelic plants. It was almost like there's like this secret world in the Bay area that I that started feeling like you. I could start seeing. And that oh, was sort of like vindicated I, me because I'm like, damn, this guy really, he's one of these dudes who's sec- living this double life of like really into fucking mescaline. Like how many other people like that are there who are by themselves in the middle of the suburbs with like a mescaline factory? And it didn't even seem like he was dealing. It, it just seemed like it was his hobby. Like it was a passion of his. So it was just very fascinating.
0: Well, it shows you how... Open, the community was in an underground way where it was like you could build connections and trust with people just by simply knowing something like yeah. that. That for the thirty years that that guy lived there, no one had ever said anything about this, and that because you did, he was like, "Come in, let me like show off." Yeah, finally. You know, in a way, it was, Uh like, very exciting, probably, and a proud moment for him. Like, oh, finally, someone fucking understands. But at the same time, I feel like I wonder if it's different now. Like, I wonder if people actually do drive around, try to scour for San Pedro and, like, cut it and, you know, steal it and shit because it's just so different now. Um, It was just such a special place in history that you were able to, like, experience this because I just feel like it's completely different now
2: yeah and it's and it was really shocking to me how quickly i discovered after getting interested in psychedelics and getting more gravitated towards more obscure psychedelics and you know dmt was legendary already to me when i was reading stories about it i hadn't even done acid or mushrooms at this point yet i was like just getting as much knowledge as i could about the scene who the you know influencers were who was the ones with the most interesting ideas and I just randomly read one day, and I, th- I don't remember what it was a psychedelic article somewhere saying that, like, Alexander Shulgin and his farm in Pleasant Hill, California, and there was a street in Pleasant Hill called Shulgin Drive. Like, on what the map, the hell? I didn't realize that for parts of my life that I had driven back and forth by this street that literally Alexander Shulgin lived on, and he still lived on. Like, it was just, it felt really special. I'm like, wow, I'm really actually like. In the center of all this right now, I just didn't realize it. At the time, like, Shulgin seemed relatively obscure. Like, even though you read about him as this big, influential guy online, I didn't really know where to go see him talk or anything. Before I forget, was this around the time
0: that, I'm assuming you didn't buy peyote from the guy that you talked to. Yeah. But I do remember (laughs) you, uh, I do remember going to your house once and seeing you trying to get through several blender-sized uh, doses of the peyote cactus Just gr- fucking blended up yep. And you were trying to choke your way Through drinking several of these And I couldn't um, even
2: drink one I don't that think cup. that you
0: actually made it
2: <laughs> Oh no it was it was awful I mean imagine like bitter <laughs> The most bitter vegetable Like pepper flavor That's not good Like, because Sometimes bitter peppers have like a good flavor But imagine like one that's not good That doesn't have a good flavor That's just a bitter spicy pepper not even just bitter but like just gross and then mi- mixed with just pure mucus because this is what a cactus does when you idiotically try to blend the entire thing in a blender to answer your question i was trying to extract mesclun from a san pedro cactus a legally you know obtainable cactus you can get at, you, you used to be able to get them at home depot very commonly seen there's a lot of columnar cactus that looks similar Like you'd almost mix up something that's not San Pedro for San Pedro, but the way to tell something San Pedro is it usually has a certain amount of ridges and the the thorns are very short. Sometimes it doesn't even poke you when you rub up against it. It's like, it's kind of a non-dangerous feeling cactus compared to some other ones. Mm -hmm. Basically, I learned later that you're supposed to extract the core, which is like a whole toilet paper roll size of like nothing, like just gunk. You extract that. You also remove the outer layer of the skin of the cactus because that's almost like a weird protective membrane. It's like plastic almost. So you get rid of that, then you dethorn it, and then you basically just want to try to carve out the most green part of the inner skin, and that's where all the mescaline is. So that what you're left with is basically like one-tenth of the amount of cactus. <laughs> so yeah, trying to blend. Don't, don't do that at home if you're trying to consume mescaline from San Pedro's. So blend an entire cactus... The other method that was equally as gross, but you drink a lot less, was boiling it down on a very slow, low low boil. So you do the blending method like you're talking about, and then you leave it over like a you know pot with water for like an hour until it's just like a total sludge, and then you just keep boiling that down, boiling it down until you have just like a couple shot glasses of like San Pedro wheatgrass shots, and they're like undrinkable. Yeah. I mean, unless you're like one of those people who can just drink anything, like... I was like instant gag reflex. <laughs> I was still able to get some down when I effectively did it. And I just remember being very nauseous during the trip. Like the nausea that hit me when I gagged, it just never left. Like from the moment I felt that mm-hmm. initial gag to like watching like like people's faces start turning purple and stuff. It was pretty mild as far as I've heard other mescaline trips go, but it was like I was nauseous the entire time. So I probably just yeah. never do it again even if I had the opportunity to, like, pure mescaline, you know, if somebody handed it to me.
0: I mean, I only, I've only done mescaline once, and it was just snorting a couple lines of it, and it was, like, really intense. Um, I cannot imagine doing what you did. I, I have a pretty strong gag reflex, too. It's really hard for me to even drink hard alcohol. Like, I can't. And, yeah, I mean, that, that's just nuts that you tried You tried two different ways that sound fucking horrible (laughs) to try this shit. Jesus Christ, man. Um, But let's get into Terrence McKenna because he's a really important figure in this story. As you mentioned in the last episode, Terrence McKenna was kind of like the intellectual leader of this rave culture movement. He says, I'm a child of the 60s, born in 46, went to Berkeley as a freshman in 65, did the India circuit, did the LSD circuit, went to South America. And then he talks about all the books he wrote. He co-wrote a book with his brother after going to South America to search for mind altering substances where they just took a shitload of ayahuasca and mushrooms. And this was in 76 that he wrote a book with his brother about tryptamines. um, And it was under a pseudonym. Because this was when everything was criminalized. And so it's just crazy to think that you would write a book talking about how to harvest, grow mushrooms, and then just publish it. Yeah. An illegal, like encouraging to cultivate an illegal drug that could put you in prison for the rest of your life. And you're writing and fucking publishing a book about this under a pseudonym. It's pretty goddamn crazy. You know, and... I mean, it's really funny, too, when you look at, like, you know, he's another child of the 60s and and was another child of this era in the Bay Area where he went to Berkeley. Check this out. He graduated with degrees in ecology and shamanism. Like, how fucking hilarious was this time that you can go to Berkeley and study shamanism? (laughs) Wow. And then he goes back and then he goes back and get his master's in the chemistry of ayahuasca. Like, like sign me up dude why the fuck did I go to school for political science like could have been studying shamanism and fucking the chemistry of ayahuasca like it's just hilarious fields to be studying at an Ivy League university like this so anyway back to his bio um he just talks about how he's kind of this gadfly philosopher how he really tried to be a part of the culture while he studied the culture and while he wrote about the culture. And so he does say, like, I've had a pretty unique career as this commentator because I was right in the thick of it. You know, I'm there. I'm part of the rave recordings. I'm part of all of this experience. I mean, I'm sure there was some some ego involved, but it was really like it really lacked any sort of pretentious quality. You know, the fact that he was just right there, he was accessible, he was willing to work with all these electronic artists, and be visible. Be this person who was willing to talk to anyone. Um, I'm sure if he was around today, he would probably be, like, super accessible, like, doing interviews all the time. I mean, he was just that kind of guy. And he had a lot to fucking Very say. Very down to earth. <laughs> if
2: you listened to him and didn't know anything about him being, like, a psychedelic culture figure or this kind of New Age philosopher, you would almost just think he sounds like a very friendly kindergarten teacher. He has this affect to him, or he just sounds very warm, friendly. He almost like brings a smile to your face, like his way of speaking. Like it's just so I could see, you know, not just from being involved in the psychedelic scene and being such an influential figure, just his personality and his charisma kind of gained him this cult-like following. And you know, it is kind of cringy to watch sometimes like videos of his talks where you could see people in the audience and just it it does feel kind of culty you know I don't know anything about him taking advantage of having that cult status like he never tried to pull any like Keith Raniere stuff as far as I know but like he definitely was like in this very unique place in culture where he was very revered and very ahead of the curve I mean in his first book I didn't even realize that his first book about DMT, or that we talked about DMT, came out in 1975. He tells the story about how him and Dennis went down to the Amazon after their mom died from cancer in 1970 in search of a plant preparation containing DMT, which was kind of like an ayahuasca thing that they had heard about. Mm -hmm. And instead of stumbling upon this, they had accidentally come across a field of psilocybin mushrooms just totally by happenstance. Mm -hmm. And this became the focus of their, I guess, their studies from that point on. So to think someone was, you know, in 1970 going down to the Amazon to try to find DMT, that's pretty fucking ahead of his time. I mean, William Burroughs wrote about doing that. There's not very many people who were that dedicated to these plant hallucinogens who would do this Exactly. but it's funny yeah. too because it's like as brave and as cutting edge and like very ahead of his time as he was it just took him into some super loony territory when it comes to like reading about his own experiences like him and his brother apparently tried to bond a psychedelic compound called harmine, which is one of the components in ayahuasca that activates DMT it is a psychedelic on its own as well, they tried to bond it with their own neural DNA using a specific set of vocal techniques. They hypothesized, this is from Wikipedia, they hypothesized this would give them access to the collective memory of the human species and would manifest the alchemist philosopher stone, which they viewed as a hyperdimensional union of spirit and matter. So, I don't know, I mean, that's thats all I wanted to say for now about this.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes more sense when you realize that he was really going to that far out territory. When you understand what he thought all of this was, Mm -hmm. um, that he actually thought that DMT and psilocybin were messages from an alien civilization. Like quite literally, it was was being encoded through the spores of the mushrooms given to us by another person like universe like another re- plane of reality crazy. that he called the quote unquote
2: over mind
0: wow. um, he was open to the notion that psychedelics could be trans dimensional travel I mean this shit is um, very appealing and I mean it's anyone very, who's
2: very appealing
0: no it, it, <laughs> well of course and anyone who's taken DMT knows that this like I could totally see this I mean it is fucking nuts that he, I mean, he, he said himself, he was like, DMT sends you to a parallel dimension where you encounter higher dimensional entities that he called ancestors or spirits of the earth. Um, and and it really does feel like an ecology of souls. I mean, even a lower dose where you just become the kaleidoscope, there is this dissolution with your ego that you do feel like you're just in a completely other fucking reality. It's completely incomparable, at least for me, to mushrooms or acids. Exactly. I mean, but for him, he does think that psilocybin was a similar thing. But that DMT just blew the gateway wide open. And to
2: think someone like him, I mean, we have to imagine for a second, you and me probably wouldn't consider taking more than an eighth or maybe a little bit more than that of mushrooms. Terrence McKenna, I'm sure he's taken some heroic doses of mushrooms. So I think at a certain level of if you're taking a shit ton of mushrooms and just out of your mind on acid I, I do think it can get to a dmt level of feeling like that breaking mm-hmm. through to a parallel dimension where you actually feel like you're encountering like entities i haven't had those experiences except for like drugs like dmt or salvia but it is really fascinating that it's like i think even people who haven't done dmt who have still had very strong trips in general on other drugs there is something unique about dmt that it does seem to access that space for a lot of people who take it for their very first time, they instantly go to a place and the way Terrence McKenna describes it is very resonant for my own experience where he almost describes it as like there's these entities that are waiting for you on the other side for your arrival in excitement and when you come through, there's a cheer. That was what my first DMT experience felt like I was being sent into this other dimension like to some crowd of I don't know, aliens? I don't know how, how you would describe them, but entities that were extremely excited to see me. I mean, yeah, you could go out of your mind on mushrooms and have all these kinds of experiences, but it it does feel like you're being blasted into another dimension. Like, in contact. You know, like with Jodie Foster.
0: It literally, it literally does. Let's Let's play that clip from him right now about DMT.
1: The problem with DMT is it's incredible power that only the most intrepid can form any coherent impression whatsoever of what's going on if it's a strong trip. I mean, there are sub-threshold trips where you just graze the tummy of the beast and then people come down with various models of archetypal closure with the cosmic carnival That's the archetype of DMT is the cosmic circus and and but once you if you actually get a strong hit of it Which is in no way dangerous, but simply a true boundary dissolving hit it's into some place It's almost like uh, well, I once said, you know, the, there's danger of death by astonishment. <laughs> and, and I think that's true. That's the major danger is death by astonishment. Because you just get in there and you say, my God, what does this say about the archetypes? There is no archetype for this, not in the painting of the Bushmen, not in the ecstasies of Hildegard von Bingen, not in the ravings of Mandayan ecstatics, human spiritual experience never got this deep, never tore open this doorway, and yet what? It's a long toke away for an ordinary human being? How could something that titanic and beautiful and cosmic and alien be kept secret. When what we do is we seek in all corners, in all times and places for the bazaar, the outre, the unthinkable. We're always turning over rocks, secret teachings, you know, ancient cities, buried ruins, lost tribes, you name it. Well, then here is this thing which is like the absolute quintessence of what all those things are are aiming for. You know, more stunning than the rise of Atlantis from the Atlantic seaboard is a toque of DM More appalling than the arise the arrival of alien star fleets in the skies (laughs) of our planet and yet It's here it's here and i don't often invoke it i mean for me to talk about it is to invoke it because it's weird to talk about it because it reminds me that we don't know what we're doing at all that we sit in rooms discussing all this stuff and and you know a war rages ignorant armies clash by night that whole thing but you know this extraordinarily powerful thing the depth of which the measure of which is so hard to take lies very near on the other side as as you break through there's a cheer there's a, 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 a whole bunch of entities waiting on the other side and they, you know that Pink Floyd song, the gnomes have learned a new way to say hooray. Well, it's that place. It's those gnomes. And you burst into this space and um, and they're saying how wonderful that you're here. You come so rarely. We're so delighted to see you. And the one of the things about the MT that's really puzzling is, in a sense, it doesn't affect your mind, and there are, there are many of them, and they come pounding toward you, and they will stop in front of you and vibrate, but then they do a very disconcerting thing, which is they jump into your body. They jump into your body, and then they jump back out again. and. The whole thing is going on in this very high speed mode where you're being presented with thousands of details per second and you can't get a hold on, you say, you know, my God, what's happening? And these things are saying, don't abandon yourself to amazement, which is exactly what you want to do. You just want to go nuts with how crazy this is. They say, don't do that. Don't do that. Pay attention. Pay attention to what we're doing. Well, what are they doing? Well, what they're doing is they're making objects with their voices. They're singing structures into existence. These things are... and what they will do is they'll come toward you and then, and you have to understand, they don't have arms. So we're kind of downloading this into a lower dimension to even describe it. But what they do is they offer things to you. Say, look at this, look at this. And as your attention goes toward these objects, you realize that what you're being shown is impossible. It's impossible. It's not simply intricate, beautiful and hard to manufacture. It's impossible to make these things. The nearest analogy would be to the Fabergé eggs or something like that. But these things are like the toys that are scattered around the nursery inside a UFO or something.
0: Yeah, so Robbie, it's so apt calling this a cosmic circus. Yes. You know, it's so huge, so alien. Like he says, how has this been kept secret? and he goes into the machine elves a lot in, in different ways. And it, it gets really funny because he like anthropomorphizes these creatures and like talks about how um, silly they are and how, like if you're smart, if you're an intelligent person, then you can like do riddles with them. The way they relate to intelligence is they set you riddles.
1: Elves are about language. If you're stupid, they make you sleep for a hundred years at the center of their hills and don't let you go back. If you can riddle their riddle and riddle in return, then they think you're a fine fellow and they let you crawl back to the pub or whatever it is. So there is this, there, the word that I use to describe the, my feeling about the DMT space is it's zany, it's like It's like a coyote cartoon or a Marx Brothers film. It's a land of explosions and falling anvils, and yet it's all for fun. But you have the feeling that these guys play so rough that their idea of fun might also include the possibility of handing you four sticks of dynamite on a short fuse just because it would be so amusing to do that. So it's uh, it's got a funny emotional vibe to it. It's lots of fun, but you really want to be on
0: your toes. You can solve the riddle; they'll like let you in. And he was like, "But if you can't
2: stand it, you won't remember it." I mean, that's the thing with these kinds of drugs. It's like it's such a otherworldly experience where time essentially freezes or feels infinite. Like either way, how you want to describe it that it's like the memory is so specific to that moment that you really only are able to bring back little shards of it. Realistically speaking, like, I'll like I like to pretend that I can remember vividly my DMT mm-hmm. trip from beginning to end, but I have just these snapshots and I don't know how much of my own memory is actually faded or how much of that is actually what I experienced. I have to be in that state. There really is no way to convey it to someone with words. I mean.
0: Right human communication is so limiting that there's no way to explain this experience to someone unless they have it for themselves. And that that's just the way it is. It's like, you can try. I mean, he did the best job I think at trying to articulate what this is, but like I can't. So why even
2: try? We both tried to before, you know, and I've described it very differently when I've tried different times, um, even on this, the, our own podcast. Uh, years apart terence mckenna you know he's saying how has this been kept secret it's so powerful he knew the dmt was somehow very unique even compared to all these other powerful psychedelic drugs but what he did in essence was he let out the secret the, i mean he wrote more vividly more excitedly more just about he made dmt the centerpiece And that i think really catapulted dmt to the level of how i heard of it for example how probably joe rogan heard of it how people like duncan trussell heard of it and ayahuasca which is a oral traditional brew that contains dmt and other psychoactive plants some of those plants are in there to activate the dmt which is very kind of fascinating of itself that this brew or concoction has existed for thousands of years and people learned How to activate a drug that is not normally active in the stomach. If you just drink a DMT containing plant, chances are you won't feel anything. But if you combine it with what's considered an MAOI inhibitor psychoactive, you will the DMT will activate. So ayahuasca is actually a concoction of a drug that activates the DMT and the DMT itself. And in these traditional brews, it is a lot of the time harmaline. In the form of like a type of vine that's usually found in like the Amazonian jungle, and even sometimes they actually add deliriums, like we were talking about in the last episode, f- fever-inducing hallucinogens, like belladonna-style plants to the brew. So, like if you get if you find like a real ayahuasca shaman who's like following a really old recipe, you're not even really supposed to ask what's in it. It's like a secret thing that's been passed down. <laughs> These like ayahuasca tourism things now. It's probably a very clean, very specific version of ayahuasca using a very specific plant. And DMT was also used um, in the form of like snuff, where there are natives um, and different uh, tribes in the Amazon jungle that would actually get high off of certain kinds of root bark by blowing it into each other's nose through like a giant straw. And they would call this like a snuff yopo. Which actually contains DMT. So, snorting some kind of rough extract of DMT has already been around, you know, forever. So, again, this is something that was not discovered by white Western civilization. It goes back for we don't know how long. I mean, it could go back all the mm-hmm. way to very ancient history.
0: No, it's super interesting. And um, it is so amazing now the ayahuasca tourism industry and kind of the colonizing aspect of, or the imposition, I guess, of like Westerners in these indigenous areas to like do this kind of stuff and just how bizarre it is. Like, it's very strange. And we're going to get into that in the next episode. But, um, you know, McKenna is such a quirky and fascinating character. Like, I mean, just his voice, as you just heard. I mean, it's, he's very easy to listen to. You know, he's one of those guys that has this kind of stream of consciousness way of talking, that I could totally see how he could be—he could have become a cult leader very easily. And I'm sure he did have a cult following, but he didn't really abuse that. Um, you know, he kind of was a loner. He was a hermit, lived a lot of his life just out in the wilderness. Um, you know, didn't have like followers at a commune that he like.
2: Uh, he lived him. on a on a volcano. Um, on, on the big island yeah, in Hawaii right um, the last few years of his life it's Hmm. yeah
0: I mean and it, it's interesting his voice is also like this kind of soothing almost like buzzing robotic kind of voice kind of like I would imagine the machine elves having it, <laughs> if they could speak like literally like when you reach that peak DMT t trip and interact with these machine elves it like seems like Terrence McKenna's voice would just like naturally be emanating yeah from like the his
2: voice sounds psychedelic that's a, it's it, yeah no so seriously I don't know if he cultivated that on purpose or what he's channeling but <laughs> no there is something mesmerizing <laughs> about his voice so I would say it's respectable that he didn't you know actually have a real cult you know calming around him because I, I think he probably could have easily pulled one off just put his voice alone oh my god of course
0: Each thing
1: that we do anticipates this deeper fall inward into the dream. The dream is what awaits us at the end of history. The dream, and you can call it hyperspace, or cyberspace, or the trans-death realm, but what it really is, is it's a going into the dream. And what is the dream? the dream is a place where the laws are set by the imagination the imagination is god in the dream and if there is a way for us to mirror our highest aspirations in other words to inculcate the god image in ourselves then it's by becoming the masters of our dream and then creating through drugs, technology, magic, who cares, the details come later, creating a way to share that so that we each then are a god with an open office doorway to all the other gods who wander through looking at the, the, the cosmogonies that we produce as art.
0: That's why his spoken word and lectures and stuff and also just, you know, he he showed up at a lot of these raves and did like spoken word real time. But that's why you hear a lot of his talks and speech in these experimental albums during that time. In fact, when I first saw Terrence McKenna and heard his voice, I realized that I'd heard his voice many times before at raves, at different dance parties, in different experimental songs. So it makes sense. We should play a
2: clip from um, probably his most well-known uh, piece of mu- his music release that he did with a, a group called Space Time Continuum. Um, they're an English group, but they they relocated to the Bay Area, and they used to do like a lot of chill room uh, type shows, kind of like in the genre of the music of like the orb from that time period. And in 93, Space Time Continuum and Terrence McKenna released an album called Alien Dreamtime, opening song is Time Wave Zero. The
1: end state of human history, a return to the archaic mode, a rediscovery of the orgiastic freedom of the African grasslands of 20,000 years ago, a techno escape forward into a future that looks more like the past than the future because materialism, consumerism, product fetishism, all of these things will be eliminated, and technology will become nanotechnology and disappear from our physical presence. If, if we have the dream, if we allow the wave of novelty to propel us toward the creativity that is inimical to the human condition, this is what we're talking about here. Psychedelics as a catalyst to the human imagination, psychedelics as a catalyst for language, because what cannot be said cannot be created by the community. So what we need then is the forced evolution of language. And the way to do that is to go back to the agents that created language in the very first place. And that means the psychedelic plants, the Gaian logos, and the mysterious beckoning. Extra
2: does talk about the Time Wave Zero theory, and you know the archaic revival. Um, I don't know if it talks about the Stone to Ape theory, but why don't you go into some of those theories that he had that have sort of? I mean, especially the Stone to Ape theory, if that's inspired a lot of people still.
0: I mean, it inspires me. Um, and Food of the Gods was a very transformative book for me. Me as well. McKenna, before I get into the stoned ape theory, because it's a very important one, um, he did popularize the notion of taking a hero's dose, which is five grams of dried psilocybin mushrooms taken alone on an empty stomach in silent darkness with your eyes closed. And and according to him, that's the only way someone could experience this kind of visionary experience that he recommends believing that the power of the mushroom can like slay whatever this message is that that resonates from your inner self that can tap into this collective consciousness. But at the same time, the reason that I really appreciate him, one of the many reasons that I really appreciate him, is because he also individualizes the experience, and he talks about how our minds are very important. Like the it like we need to personalize the trip like we are the ones experiencing this and and it's a very authentic original thing and so he he does have this incredible lecture about just like the imagination and how we need to appreciate both the individuality of it as well as like the collective and it's just a cool cool way to, to approach it because i feel like a lot of psychedelic discussion and like um things that arise from it is like, oh, it's not about you. You know, you tap into something that's bigger than you, which which we do. But at the same time, it kind of takes away from the fact that you are having this profound potentially life-altering experience. And what does that mean for you in carrying that forward? So anyway, it's just a really interesting way that he synthesizes all of this. I think I mentioned before that, you know, he thinks that psilocybin mushrooms are like of an alien species of, an, of a higher intelligence. And this may sound totally nuts to someone but actually when you look at how life originated on this planet it did it, but there is a theory that is very credible and and corroborated by many scientists that um that it did come from space right that the that the impetus that genesis of life was traveled by like something crashing into the earth and bringing it here and um and he talks about that he he says in, in an interview with Scientific American, someone confronts him about this and they're like, do you really think that mushrooms are like an alien species? And he's like, look, he's like, mushroom spores can survive the cold of outer space. <laughs> in fact, mushroom cultivators here on earth store the spores in liquid Jesus nitrogen. Christ. So he's like, look, he's like, look, if someone's going to design a bioinformational package, a spore is how you would That's go. Amazing. Millions of them pushed around by light pressure and gravitational Sounds dynamics would percolate
2: through the galaxy. I mean, Dude,
0: serious. That's the thing. You you take away from some of this shit, and you're like, all right, like I'm in. Son. I mean, he <laughs> was
2: one of one of the best guests on Coast to Coast AM because like he could jump from all these different subjects and really blow like Art Bell's mind in a way that like Art Bell, I feel like he was probably like, really impressed by Terrence McKenna because he because Terrence McKenna does have this like he's taking these drugs, he's going to these, he is describing yeah. shit he's seen what i'm thinking
1: would fulfill this entire scenario without requiring god almighty to put in an appearance is uh time travel i think that uh we are moving toward you know if you look at biology over huge scales of time hundreds of millions of years uh it is a kind of conquest of dimensionality.
3: Alright, uh, let's, let's consider that. Uh, somebody recently said, and I have been considering since I heard it, uh, a very simple question. If time travel is possible, then where are the time travelers?
1: Well, when I asked that question to my sources, they said, you, you can only travel as far back into the past as the moment of the invention of the first time machine because
3: before that, there were no time machines. Huh, huh, uh, that, I, but let me think about that. Does that make sense? You could only travel back to the moment of the invention of the time machine, because prior to that, there was no capability. It's like trying to
1: drive where there are no roads. Yeah. It also means when you invent the first time machine, instantly time machines will appear by the tens of thousands, having come back through time to see the first flight into
3: time. (laughs) That's that's incredible. I never... That's a whole new line of thought for me about about that question. Um, And it might make sense. It might make sense. Uh, And and your analogy is trying to... That you cannot drive, in essence... uh, uh, where there are no roads. Where there are no roads. Well, of course, you, you nearly do that when you go home uh, from, from the broadcast here. But...
1: <laughs> and you haven't even been up to see me. You're <laughs> <off.
2: laughs> Um. He's not making these things up. It's just that some of the ideas he would take away and conclusions he would draw, you know, were, you know, at times very magical leaps. But they were, they were at least entertaining, you know, and not like mean-spirited well, he- and... And crazy like Alex Jones or someone like that. No, no, this is this is the best
0: spirited theory of the stoned ape, and it yeah, sure, it's based on a lot of mental leaps. But let's just let's just imagine it for a second. Um, he writes the book Food of the Gods in 1992. In summary, it's basically that our species Homo sapiens jump-started like the expansion of our consciousness that essentially created all aspects of human culture because we started eating psilocybin. <laughs> So according to McKenna, early humans migrated across Africa in search of new food and naturally follow herds of cattle, right? Because that's where the food was coming from. The the cows were following where the food sources were. Of course, cattle's dung grows psychedelic Mm -hmm. mushrooms. And early hunters and gatherers naturally would find and eat these mushrooms. Now, what's interesting about it is that Going back to Silicon Valley, the tens of thousands of people who are microdosing for that exact same reason that McKenna theorized that the compound gave our early ancestors evolutionary advantage. So um, from Wikipedia, based on annotations from Food of the Gods references, because my book is in boxes because we're trying to move. um, It says McKenna's hypothesis was that low doses of psilocybin improve visual acuity resulting in better hunters and an increased food supply. So that was the base level of like the evolutionary advantage. Is that just the same reason that people microdose all the time? It inc- it improves productivity, hyper acute awareness of your surroundings, visual stimulation. At higher doses, the mushroom acts to sexually arouse, leading to higher levels of attention, erection, <laughs> rendering it even more evolutionary beneficial as it would result in more offspring. I know that it gets so really wonky. Though. Let me just re- let me just finalize his theory. Then at even higher doses, McKenna argued the psilocybin would trigger the activity in the language-forming region of the brain. So this is where he says it really manifested music and visions and was the evolutionary catalyst for essentially everything we know today. Now, apparently he was basing a lot of this research on effects of microdosing and larger dosing from a guy named Roland Fisher from the late 60s to early 70s. And his theory today, even though it's debunked and ridiculed by a lot of people, it's also corroborated by a lot of people and supported by people like mycologists and other, you know, uh, I don't know if evolutionary biologists agree with it, but like a lot of people who you would be surprised by actually do entertain this theory because here's the thing. There was a sudden doubling of the human brain around 200,000 years ago. And there's no solid explanation for this huge increase in our in our brain
2: it's the mushrooms baby
0: and so you know that hasn't been explained and like props to fucking Terrence mckenna for like just filling in the gaps and presenting this really incredible and kind of believable theory it's like gets super interesting and no one else has really put these pieces together um the debunking does kind of bring up a, a couple good points which is just The fact that other animals exhibit consciousness through, you know, mirror tests and stuff like that. And so the fact that none of these consciousnesses have expanded because of psychotropic drugs, like why are humans more special than other animals? And then, of course, just the idea that it's based on what if this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. You know what I mean? So it's like if this is possible, then this is, then this is, then this is. And so there's no real like concrete it's not backed up by like actual evidence.
2: (laughs) There's a faulty fundamental to it for me just coming be, you know, starting out on this being more of like a utopianist when it comes to the way I saw psychedelics, like being good for humanity and they're inherently good and positive. I mean, I think that's sort of the viewpoint Terrence McKenna probably had too. And he had all the way through his life and it shapes pretty much everything that he says including this, where it's like automatically that a primate would become like more visually aware, more like better hunter, like more horny, better like erection. It just seems like he's almost like talking about himself after he takes mushrooms. He's like, I fucking feel great. I can fuck all night. I see shit hella good in the dark. Like I'm not, I'm just saying like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, that's his experience. Everybody has different experiences on mushrooms. So
0: yeah, ultimately, no, totally, it does totally, have that yeah, air no. of like and microdosing well, too. Of course, yeah.
2: I mean, he actually—I remember—he um, recommended against microdosing um, at a certain point.
0: Well, and in fact, um, according to his brother Dennis, um, Terence actually stopped taking mushrooms after a dark trip in the '80s. Oh, interesting! And actually, rarely and reluctantly did any psychedelic after that, stronger than weed even though he did apparently according to people who knew him he did still take small doses of acid but he never took another hero's dose oh my
2: god wow so actually i don't feel that yeah. bad for not not taking another hero's dose like because when dude, i read exactly. about these people i'm like they just must have been taking hero's doses their whole goddamn lives like the last time i tried to take a hero's dose of anything i was like that was fucking i'm too old for the shit like that was crazy dude yeah dude
0: yeah, I mean, there is something about your ego that definitely holds on more and more to your identity as you get older and, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves that like really, really does not want to let go of those. And also
2: just the concept of death. It's like when you have oh, like absolutely. a near death or a virtual, you know, ego death experience on a psychedelic, I feel like the older you get, you know, you have this maybe imagination that you'd be more comfortable with the idea, but it's like you're no, you're mm-hmm. closer. You're literally closer mm-hmm. than you were like when you're in your early twenties when maybe it seemed easier to integrate the idea of this is what death is like.
0: The invincibility chip that you have when you're yeah. early twenties, it's like, I don't fucking care, dude. And now death is all I think about. Especially with my son. It's like it's so weird. The second you have a kid, it's like it's like a march toward death and a race against time. It's the most bizarre thing ever. And I think that all the time too when I read about people like Terrence McKenna, I think, how the fuck? Are you doing this shit? You know Ram Dass, like all these people. It's like you're fucking 40, 50 years old, like doing hero doses, drinking from vials of acid. Like how?
2: I can maybe see doing just DMT again, you know, at some point when I'm yeah. older. I mean, for sure.
0: Well, I mean that that's definitely true in regards to a lot of these people. I think that they don't. You know, it's it's hard to talk about why you won't do it. You know, and so McKenna, of course, didn't. Didn't talk about that. Yeah. He didn't talk about how he had a bad trip in the '80s and didn't do a hero's dose again. You know, which is so, a little maybe irresponsible. I think a lot of people were really. Part. I know that. That's what I was going to say. A lot of people were upset mm-hmm. when they found this out because they said, "How could you be promoting this publicly when at the same time you yourself had stopped and you weren't really talking about what that's
2: happened?" That's very um, interesting. Um, I this is the first time I'm hearing that. So, like, yeah, that kind of has a dark side to it. I don't, I don't really know what to think of that. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, here's another another kind of wonky, not dark, but just it really showed you because of the lack of pretense, because Terrence McKenna was this kind of quirky character who was willing to go really far, unapologetically, he went a little too far sometimes, you know? And he he really became passionate, especially toward the end of his life, about something called the novelty theory, where he essentially claimed to have discovered a new mathematical formulation to explain the nature of time essentially based on fractal patterns in the I Ching. Now, apparently um, through this calculation, he predicted a transformative event, essentially a massive shift in consciousness that would happen around the year 2012, which he proudly said lined up exactly with the Mayan calendar, Mm -hmm. you know, that infamous uh, the Mayan calendar ending abruptly at 2012 or whatever and signifying of the end course. of the world and instead of explaining more about the novelty theory because it's so bizarre but like one of the possible catalysts that McKenna said would be AI that would like cause this like total severing of like reality as we know it but it was very abstract was. like people would try to pin him down and they'd be like so what do you think is going to happen like do you think the end of the world And he was just like no no. He was like you would not understand it's just a prediction of an unpredictable event, an enormously reality rearranging thing. And he'd like he would like poke fun at himself. Mm-hmm. You know, like he he wouldn't even take himself seriously as he was saying this, even though he totally fucking believed this and preached and all it all the time. In a book he still like would just charts be like in
2: mathematical formulas dude, and, and pages dudes. and pages of data that he claimed was like backing up what he said
0: exactly and he and he goes off on these crazy yarns, but at the same time he still like couldn't actually tell you what would happen because he just he wanted to organize history in time and like make it make sense and show that it like obeys laws. That's what he said. so he said that you know when he was trying to be pinned down by the Scientific American interviewer, he was just like he was like, I've just created one mathematical model of the flow and ebb of novelty in history and he was just like, it's not a mathematically defined entity. He's just kind of fantasizing. Whenever some someone would try to pin him down, he would just kind of like say yeah. things like that, like very abstractly.
2: What the fuck are you talking about here? But I'm still caught up on the and I Ching fractal pattern thing. I thought I, the whole point of I Ching was that it was like random.
0: That's <laughs> the thing is, I've tried to look into this, and I've tr- and I've heard him talk about it, and it's still so 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 confusing um, it's pretty amazing yeah. I mean it kind of makes sense in the sense that like he thought everything is either static or like novel so it's either ev- everything's trying to reinforce the status quo or, tr- or trying to fight like change and so it's like the universe and the history of time is these two forces counteracting with each other and he thought that with the advent of everything that was happening, the technological explosion of like computers and stuff, I get—he had just somehow mathematically constructed this theory that it was going to like outpace the habit, like the novelty was going to outpace it to the sense that like it was just going to fucking like destroy our plane of existence I mean, or something. I I, don't, even, I, don't, I, even I don't.
2: remember distinctly hearing him answer the question when people ask him what is going to happen. He would say it could be anything from. Aliens making contact with human civilization, an interdimensional God force communicating with us through our own minds collectively. He came up with just like every crazy crazy. like sci-fi novel plot that would be like game changing for human society that he could throw in in there. Right. (laughs) It's almost just like he's not moving the goalposts, but he's just like showing you more fun shit to think about (laughs) that like yeah i mean so but yeah like i remember being definitely more of a believer of his when i was reading his stuff in terms of thinking he was much more scientific based about his stuff but i mean yeah like i still appreciate his contribution um he definitely died way too young dennis mckenna kind of carried out his legacy i think and and got really involved in the uh the psychedelic community and at his memorial actually terence mckenna's memorial is where a bunch of these people that we're going to talk about next uh, met each other for the first time.
0: Oh, my God. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, sadly, Terrence McKenna kind of died at 50 fucking three years young, dude. Died of brain cancer 53 years young. And he actually was so paranoid, like I would be, that smoking weed daily like oh, caused sad. the brain cancer. And apparently it had nothing to do with it at all and at least he was able to go to his grave not you know not not thinking that he brought this on himself and that it was just the random cosmic mm-hmm. energy of the universe that decided his fate but we
1: empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity it's a wonderful thing to learn to be able to stand up and yell bullshit I I did it when I first, when I was about 18 years old. And it was the meme of the hour. And uh, it it, it blew their minds. It did blow their minds. It was uncivil. (laughs) It was uncivil. It lacked polity. It was rude and crude and correct. Correct. Because so much is being slung. And nobody is talking about the primacy of experience and the dignity of the individual. The dignity of the individual. We went a long way with this in America before we betrayed it. And it wasn't only betrayed by the clowns in Washington, it's also betrayed by anybody who clusters themselves around the feet of some self-proclaimed nabob. Because the fact of the matter is, Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows. Nobody has the faintest idea. The best guesses are lies. You may be sure of it. And so to pretend that one human being will lead another out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth is ludicrous, absolutely grotesque, a product of this empowering of the human image that has gone on through several thousand years of dominator culture if you want a teacher try a waterfall or a mushroom or a mountain wilderness or a storm-pounded seashore this is where the action is it's not back in the hive it's not in the anthill It's not knocking your head against the floor in front of somebody who claims that because of their lineage and whose feet they washed and whose feet they washed, that you should give credence to them. Knowledge is provisional, and uh, we, we are yet to approach even the first moment of civilized understanding.
0: This is why I like him, too, because he he puts us like humans, like he really thought that we were like very special. Cause a lot of people are just, you know, they look at the span of civilization and then history and everything. I mean, the, the existence of our earth. And they're just like, we are just a blip of time. Like we are fucking nothing. We're meaningless. We're just fucking ants, you know? And he just, he just disagreed with that. He was like, actually we are at the center stage of this cosmic drama. And like, we are not an accident. I just
2: love him. One of the best (laughs) things he ever said about how he would describe humans to people who wanted to compare them to things like ants or oversimplify us is just like these, you know, compare us to any other animal in the animal kingdom that acts like some kind of collective unit like we do that builds cities and stuff. Imagine like how coral like lives and how Mm -hmm. it operates and builds structures. We're like a mixture between like intelligent apes and coral reef. (laughs) And like mm-hmm. I thought that that like that just a weird his the way his mind worked to be able to link those two ideas together in a way that like if you've done enough psychedelics that like makes perfect sense it's like holy shit like that is mm-hmm. pretty crazy that's way better than like describing it. it's like ants so yeah I mean some of the most colorful memorable ways of describing trips of anybody who's written about these things.
0: I think we've been a little too glowing here um, talking about McKenna because, you know, there are a lot of contradictions that came out um, after he died, unfortunately, you know, not only with the time wave zero theory that he put out there, but also revelations that were written about by his own brother in a way that actually pissed a lot of people off and a lot of people in the psychedelic community that looked at Terrence McKenna as this guru that was guiding them, you know, because he really was like a leader of a movement you know and he really he really did lead people down this path with the hero's dose and all of the things that he was telling people to do and a lot of people did feel like kind of this backstabbing um effect of of finding out that he himself stopped
2: taking huge amounts of psychedelics in, in the 80s Yeah and I mean it sounds like he didn't just stop taking huge amounts of psychedelics but like he stopped taking mushrooms in general even though he, I think mm-hmm. he said he would occasionally do mild doses of LSD, doesn't seem like he was actually continuing to do DMT or even ayahuasca. And I just have to say for myself, it was very shocking to learn this because it's not just a lie of omission, in my opinion, to not mention this, but the way that he talks about psychedelic drugs in a lot of his lectures, especially his lectures when he's doing Q&A, is if you listen to them, it sounds very, very much like he's talking about present tense or recent experiences. And I do wonder if he was, part of him was intentionally misleading people to believe that. Even though he never overtly said when he would do these things, like, you know, he never would say things like, oh, last week I did, you know, I took this dose of DMT. To me, it does seem a little manipulative learning this in retrospect. And I'm just, I'm sitting, it's troubling to sit with. I do think I could completely emphasize with why this caused a controversy within the psychedelic community, even within the world of McKenna followers after this was revealed. And it also brings up some interesting things that we talked about off air, Abby, about why someone's brother who, you know, was with him writing and collaborating with him for so long, would drop a bomb like this so long after McKenna passed away. And in a way that Dennis McKenna, his brother, had to have known this was going to be extremely controversial. And he had to have known in some ways this would undermine his brother's work. So I I find that odd in and of itself. And I'm thinking, what would happen, in a, you know, a God forbid a scenario where one of us dies, you know, say like, Mm-hmm. Uh, you die or I die, and then someone asked us about, you know, what, what was Robbie like, for example, if they're asking you. And then you were like, well, you know, actually, Robbie didn't really believe in the anthrax and the <laughs> 9-11 stuff he was talking about. It, it would be sort of like me or you, after one of us has died, saying something that would be like a bomb drop to undermine the legacy of your or my work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And let me jump in here because it wasn't just that he stopped taking mushrooms. It was that Dennis actually came out and said that he had questioned his own theories, that Terrence actually had a lot of self-doubt about the theories that he was presenting later on in his life. So it wasn't just the bomb dropping of undermining the hero dose that he was recommending to everyone with ayahuasca and mushrooms, but it was also all of his theories, which is like that is his whole legacy. That's his entire body of work right there.
2: Maybe everything Dennis is saying, let's just assume it's all true. Right. In some ways, it adds more humility to McKenna's legacy. But then when you consider the fact that he didn't talk about things in this... He talked about things in a very polished, rosy, utopian way. And it is a bit confusing why, he continued to talk about things in that way if he did feel these things. So on one hand, I'm I'm par- partly inclined to believe it because I want to think that McKenna was had that level of like humbleness about his own ideas. Then the other hand, it's like why did he continue to preach and postulatize the way he did without very rarely, I would say actually talking about the negative side of psychedelics. Like I mean, if this was true, he could have done a whole lecture on like everything I've told you, is probably wrong and that should be something you fundamentally on some level if you've taken psychedelics should understand is that i'm just like a human you know who's like trying to interpret these things and everything i've told you could could be completely off base i mean let's i mean that would be incredibly humble to say something like that but i do think it it's it is a little unsettling to think that that basically the guy who you know became essentially the new Timothy Leary of the next psychedelic era had basically only psychedelics in his past when he had reached this level of like messianic status and didn't wasn't clear about that I just can't imagine myself doing that if I was encouraging thousands and thousands of people to take powerful psychedelic drugs
0: Well, especially because the hero's dose is like not a fucking joke. No. Like even the most experienced psychedelic users, I've never taken that because it sounds terrifying. There's this one guy who wrote a very good blog about, you know, eulogizing in all the bad and good of Terrence McKenna. He was a huge fan of him. And he talks about this. He talks about how he felt slighted and that he felt like he was almost manipulated into taking a really, really heavy dose of mushrooms that really fucked him up. And it wasn't fun. And he also doesn't like the fact that he can envision that a lot of other people did the same thing. You know, like b- taking taking that much mushrooms alone in the dark, there are some creature comforts that maybe you need to take you out of a negative place when you're spiraling out in a trip like this. And so for people to feel like they needed to reach this level to be it, part of this kind of secret club, you know, I think that's why this guy was was a little bit upset
2: do you know who it was? What, what, who, what, who are you referring to? T
0: T Ferry on Erawood. He has a blog. You actually sent me this.
2: Okay, um, but in the end, was what, did, a guy who didn't he kind of conclude oh, yeah. that he was actually very apologetic of McKenna by the end yeah,
0: of this? Yeah, no, at the, no. I, it was interesting to see his thought process because he starts off talking about how he initially felt very slighted and very offended when he found out about what Dennis presented, and then he goes on to say, "Look, I mean." Terrence called himself a philosophical entertainer and he he told people that everything he said should be taken with an industrial-sized salt lick um, and that his theories were ever-evolving and that in the end he basically considered them to be pieces of cognitive art that were intended to amuse and perhaps to inspire yet more nuanced and complex discussion about these things. He never once said that they were really the truth and he even came out and said that he had absolutely no idea what was going on at all that it's impossible to tell from our default vantage point and that the only thing he's ever really truly believed was that the core of the mystery was stranger than anything than our minds were capable of processing so so it goes off on, on threads like that where it's like yeah if you listen to enough of him obviously you could eventually
2: figure out that he you know yeah again sort of giving the himself the eternal that riddler out. yeah mm-hmm and yeah, and I think something which also, I guess, bothers me about McKenna, when I'm really honest, is that it's not just that he was sort of a lie of omission by not admitting that he had, you know, not done heroic doses for a while, then he actually had a really bad experience that turned him off to heroic doses. It's that he falls into the trap that I think a lot of these psychedelic utopianist advocates do, where he acts as if his own very positive experiences on mushrooms and other psychedelics are essentially universal. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that gives people some false expectations or expectations about certain psychedelic experience. So just for example, I mean, the thing that you said earlier about the stoned ape theory that stood out to me the most as being almost funny was this idea that he was thinking that mushrooms created this evolutionary advantage for monkeys because it gave them like stronger erections and made them like more horny and orgiastic. Frankly, that to me just sounds like a very specific experience to a certain type of individual on mushrooms, unique firsthand experience. So I do think that that plagues not just McKenna's views and his writings, but sort of his following too, where there is sort of a utopianist, we only talk about the most positive aspects of these psychedelics and sort of project them as if they're these universal experiences that everyone will experience when they take them. And I think that that sets people up for a false expectation, disappointment. You know, it might even make them think that that oh, a lot of these things people have said about psychedelics were BS. I'm not going to do them again. There could be some negative outcomes like that based on how he operated.
0: There are like conflicting thoughts that I have. It's like on one hand, maybe he was going to be open about this. Maybe he was just taking a break. Maybe he didn't write them off completely. You know, on one hand, I can see where people are defending him, being like, why did he have to disclose this like really personal thing um, when he was still taking these low doses? He didn't write off psychedelics completely. Like, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it is the thing that's disingenuous to me is like, is exactly what you're saying. These are very powerful substances. There is no universal application or, or um, experience that everyone has. They can be extremely negative and they can be very nightmarish. And, and for someone to not actually embrace the good and the bad, I would actually respect him more if he was just very honest and he was like, look, like I myself was basically humbled by like a really powerful trip and I had to take a break and like, that's okay. That's okay for people to want to do this. Mm-hmm. like. And I think that that didn't give people an in who were following his work. Like they thought that they like, they weren't fucking badass well, enough.
2: Exactly. Competitive feelingness, where it's like you look up, you almost wor- worship and revere these people who are able to not just discuss these amazing psychedelic heroic doses, but like seem to be kind of like people who can handle doing them. And being able to handle doing them and come back to reality and still function like this, it's very impressive. It does put you in a sort of a higher tier of like, damn, that person is like really special. Like they're unique. They really have like a strong mind or constitution or something. It does seem like it's a way, it's like a bragging rights thing. And it makes you wonder how many of these people who talk about doing heroic doses know that it just sounds like it's a brag without actually doing them humans
0: are complex and these experiences are very complex, right? And it's not this utopian thing. And so I, I just feel like being honest about it would have been very refreshing and also potentially very helpful for people. But it also is like very upsetting that Dennis felt like he had to put this out there without insight from Terrence because there was a reason. We we will never know what that reason was. Yeah. But there was a reason why Terrence was not honest about this. And even though we may, may have disagreements about that, I... I don't really feel good about the fact that his brother put that out there. Maybe jealousy had something to do with it, to undermine his legacy. We'll never know.
2: And also, we can't hundred percent trust that his brother is telling the full truth either. Like, if we're going at this with the framing of like, Terrence lied by omission; he min- he was um, you know misleading, and Dennis let this cat out of the bag. That would require us to trust, take it face value, that Dennis is definitely telling the truth. We don't know. For sure. So uh, I I'm just I just want to make sure we say that, because I don't know very much about Dennis McKenna, and I have no reason to believe that he, you know, maybe he was really jealous. Maybe he did want to undermine Terrence in a way that people maybe aren't aware of. I have no idea. That's just speculation. So I guess we'll never know is the problem. And it is unfortunate that it's like after someone dies, you learn information like this, because you ultimately will never know what, how they really felt about it. It's coming secondhand. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to add about McKenna, but just because this is obviously going to come up when we release this episode, we have to address it. Yeah, there's been this theory floating around on the internet for last 10 years or so, put out really by like one guy. I don't even want to give him any publicity here because he's, let's just say, frankly, he's a creep. Um, and I'll just leave it there. But this theory it was perpetuated um, in a way to make it seem like all the psychedelic figures of the psychedelic 60s and later were all somehow federal government agents. Now, while there is some truth to the idea of the federal government infiltrating and being responsible for some some part in the hippie movement, um, this particular theory that Terrence McKenna was a some kind of FBI or CIA informant, to me, just does not hold water. And the only way that I could see this being convincing is if you don't really know very much about Terrence McKenna... And you read unfavorably about what he's saying. Because here's one thing Terrence McKenna would talk about all the time. He was paranoid as hell that the FBI was after him. He would hear things about that the FBI was like watching him or was interested in him.
0: Yeah, because one thing we didn't talk about is that he sold like enormous amounts of like hashish illegally. He was like doing like illegal drug trading when he lived in Bombay. Yeah. That's one thing that we didn't talk about. So he was very paranoid about that as well. And
2: it was well known. Even though he wrote these books with his brother under a pseudonym initially, he became essentially the Tim Leary of mushrooms. This is also something I think we kind of um, didn't talk about enough earlier, is that he initially became famous not over DMT, but over becoming basically like the guru to promote psychedelic mushrooms. Even though he wrote these books with his brother anonymously, I mean, the federal government had to have known who he actually was, and it was well known in the psychedelic community who he was wasn't like an extremely mysterious pseudonym. He was already a well-known figure. So it's not like he came out of hiding and was like, "Hey, I'm the guy who wrote these books." It was sort of like pseudonym but like barely any sort of cover for who he really was. So the FBI mm. was probably very well aware of him. Federal government was. So he would talk on and off throughout his books about how he felt like he had to evade law enforcement. He had to stay under the radar. He got wind at various times that the FBI was watching him and you know how we already talked about how Terrence McKenna, narcissistically so I will say, believed on some level that he was the emissary for whatever he thought was like the alien force behind these psychedelic drugs, what they were trying to communicate to us and he saw himself as like the emissary of that, like he was like the ambassador for the aliens in the mushrooms essentially and you know it sounds really silly and he and you know he would talk about it in a silly way too like he always would but here's what came out in a and i don't know the actual interview that this is from but here's what this allegation comes from uh the allegation that he was an fbi informant i'm going to read the whole thing in i wonder myself you mean am i the alien ambassador whether i like it or not well Often when asked this question, I've said it beats honest work. I mean, my brother is a PhD in three subjects and works in hard science, and yet I don't think it's brought him immense happiness. Not that he's despondent. And certainly when I reached La Correa in 1971, I had a price on my head by the FBI. I was running out of money. I was at the end of my rope, and then they recruited me and said, you know, with a mouth like yours, there's a place for you in our organization. And I've worked in deep background positions about which the less said the better. And then about 15 years ago, they shifted me into public relations and I've been there to the president. Now, I could see any conspiracy person reading this quote by itself and thinking that's very suspicious. What does he mean? It's like right there in plain view, he's saying that he worked as a public relations basically informant for sounds like he's talking about the FBI right well th- this whole conversation is nested in this silly idea that he was the alien ambassador now you know when I first looked at this I was like that is suspicious what is he actually saying here was he I mean is it possible Terrence McKenna is admitting that he used to be an FBI informant and why would someone in the hippie movement who was like so instrumental admit this in an interview So that was like the first two thoughts I had but I mean honestly when you read all this in context it is obvious that he's talking about that the alien mushroom force is the one that recruited him I I think the only standout quote from here that is a little bit suspicious is where he says I've worked in deep background positions about which the less said the better now that could be just some cryptic
0: making a joke yeah it
2: could be some cryptic riddle-ish kind of thing I don't know what he's insinuating there but I could see someone taking that specific quote out of isolation and saying well this one might mean that he's worked and done something for law enforcement before maybe I mean I have I'm not saying that's what it means but like the idea that 15 years ago they shifted me into public relations and I've been there to the present. he's clearly (laughs) not fucking talking about the FBI because at that point I mean unless basically you're implying that he'd be outing himself snitch jacking fed jacking himself in an interview and then also like joking about it saying that like oh yeah they shifted me like the fbi shifted me into public relations (laughs) i mean that's not a position that someone would do with an informant it doesn't make sense the whole thing does not make sense if that's how you're seeing it unless you think he's just joking and making jokes about it the whole time and he's admitting uh that he's a fed the whole thing i just do not think stands up on its face there's other people who've tried to connect McKenna and his legacy to other federal government things over time. Those are, to me, pretty loosey-goosey. So I think there's a lot stronger connections for someone like Leary or other people like Hoffman or Wasson to say like maybe they did have connections to the feds than McKenna. I mean, I just don't think this is very strong. So I, I know it, but we wait a long time to even mention this, but I know people were going to probably bug us about this if we didn't talk about it. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, we, wait, we waited till the end because we don't believe it. Yeah. And it, it, it. there really is nothing there. And I think that the context around this that people are pushing the notion that he might be a Fed was because they allege that he got caught smuggling hash or something in Bombay and that that was the context to which he was recruited to be an informant. Because, like, the whole thing, I was just like, why, like, what would even be the point? But then I realized that that's what they were propositioning and that still makes no sense because like you said i mean the most obvious takeaway is why would he out himself and why would he then just immediately make a joke about being in the pr uh wing of the fbi so yes what you cited earlier is not usually quoted in the context of this which is he begins that quote by saying the alien ambassadorship or whatever so right there gives it away um to me at least
2: yeah And what would be the goal, like what would be the federal government's goal in having this guy be like an informant or like even some kind of, I don't know, PR agent to spread disinformation to because they want the psychedelic community to believe in the DMT elves and believe (laughs) in the power of heroic doses? Like what would have been the ultimate goal of that?
0: So then Alex Jones could talk about the machine elves and then...
2: I don't know. Because, I mean, like, yeah, there's problems with what he did. He created, like, too much of a utopianist worldview on psychedelics and I think, you know, downplayed the dangers of them and omitted things about his own life that would have been useful for people doing them. But, I mean, I I don't see anything, any fruits of his work that seem like something that the federal government would have wanted. It just doesn't make sense to me. So the whole, yeah, the the theory just does not hold water for me. I just want to say a quote from timothy leary himself
0: because timothy leary actually was a great admirer of mckenna he did feel like he was taking over his legacy in a way and you know he said that he was an eloquent and imaginative poet of the psychedelic experience um and that tea fairy guy who wrote that really cool um arrowwood post terence mckenna was was a great artist This is what this guy is saying to sum him up. He said, Terrence McKenna was a great artist. He played his unique character in the Divine Play exceedingly well. It takes a lot of guts to keep calling him like you see him when shit gets weird, and Terrence wasn't afraid to be ridiculed for his admittedly ridiculous convictions. He just kept trying to throw language at the damn thing, even when it refused to stick, and he made ten times as much progress with that method as everyone else put together ever made by trying to talk sense. He also had the rare courage to suggest that the universe might turn out to be more awesome than we dare to dream. Hell, he even seriously seemed to believe that the future was going to turn out to be significantly better than the past. And that's about as crazy as it fucking gets, <laughs> right? On the other hand, maybe that's exactly the kind of crazy that we
2: need. It's a nice thought. I mean, I definitely like agree with mo- like a large part of that. I think the only thing in there that I'm like... You know how much you know, making ten times more progress than anyone else in the amount of time he did. I mean, he definitely became the centerpiece and popularized things to a degree that none of these other people even got close to doing. That is true. But whether that's progress or not, in terms like how you see progress, I think is up for debate. Because just pop, simply popularizing something and adding a lot of language to describe it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, that is progress in some ways, but in other ways, maybe other kinds of progress would have been useful too. After,
0: like, taking in everything that McKenna was, which is all the good and the bad, including his extreme... You know, I don't know if we actually said this, but he was very, very passionate about the Time Wave Zero thing. Like, that was not a joke. Um, but at the end of the day, it kind of he kind of was just like the elves that he describes, which was he riddled his way into theorizing things that you either went on the journey with them or you didn't and if you were intelligent enough to get the riddle then maybe he would you would go through the portal <laughs> yeah <laughs> just like he talks about the elves it's like he what he kind of like encompasses like what the depiction of the elves that he describes in a weird way the ultimate riddler and jokester and trickster and sometimes a liar
2: and it is kind of interesting that dennis mckenna now you know sort of stepped into more of a a public role, going to these psychedelic conventions, speaking, being part of the community. After McKenna passed, I don't know. Terence said he has three PhDs. He was almost throwing shade at him in that quote, but partly. <laughs> I, so I think that McKenna actually played a very unique role, where he was more of like the psychonaut role compared to all these other people who are botanists, scientists, PhD holders, Mm -hmm. academics. Even though, yeah, he went to Berkeley, he wasn't an academic. And I think that that separated him. Like, you look at the lineups of all these other psychedelic conventions in the 90s and the 80s. They're all people who seem like way more academic or like scientist types. And he's usually the odd man out. But that's the role that he played. And he played it extremely well. The, The other figure that I think he sort of stands in contrast to... He never wrote anything as colorful and as artistic in terms of, like, the trip reports. But this other guy, Jonathan Ott, you know, he wasn't a braggart about still taking heroic doses, and he still clearly was taking heroic doses. And he had a very unique approach to this where he was extremely, like, skilled in terms of being a botanist, cataloging different plants, studying them and he was the first person to write like a breakdown of pharmacologically what's in ayahuasca. So, you know, while McKenna was popularizing DMT, this sort of this mythical status, Jonathan Ott was actually trying to like almost take an Alexander Shulgin approach to ayahuasca and break it down into its fundamental components. And not just that, but Jonathan Ott is the one mm-hmm. as you said coined the term entheogen he didn't see ethyogen as something that was only in plant, like a plant spirit. People, A lot of people maybe misconstrue that term now as being some kind of plant spirit psychedelic drug. He was looking at it as like even a synthetic chemical can provide the inner God experience. And he did not look down on synthetic drugs and separate them from like plant-based psychedelics as being somehow more superior or more fundamentally spiritual, this is also something that separated Ott from this more new age-ish belief in plant spirits from the rest of the psychedelic community. Um, most of the psychedelic community was not interested in you know, taking synthetic uh, ayahuasca, but Ott, after he had broken down ayahuasca into these components, he actually started self-administering different concoctions of different pure chemicals that he had found in ayahuasca brews to see if it could recreate an actual plant ayahuasca style experience. And he would write about this extensively. And sometimes the combinations and the different things he did would seem kind of dangerous. Like that's what also made him a little different. And some of these people were very academic. They would actually talk about you know, only drugs that there was no chance that they would cause overdoses like DMT, mushrooms, LSD, never caused like a actual drug overdose in anyone's life. Ott, on the other hand, he didn't shy away from experimenting with actual dangerous substances sometimes in his own self-administered experiences. And he would write about them almost in the same way that you would see like scientific journals being written. So imagine like an Irwood trip report type style thing, but written by a guy who has all this botanical and scientific knowledge administering those drugs to himself. Kind of Shulgin-esque in a way, because this is what Shulgin does in his his own books, which we're going to talk about later. But very unique uh, role in psychedelic culture. McKenna was heavily inspired by Jonathan Ott. And I couldn't find actually any quotes from Jonathan Ott talking about Terence McKenna, but I was able to find a quote of McKenna talking about Jonathan Ott. And McKenna was very inspired by Ott's book called Ayahuasca Analogues. And this is what McKenna said in a talk. He says, Jonathan Ott wrote a book called Ayahuasca Analogues. And I think this is the way to go. I've seen too much of the ordinary kinds of ecotourism and that sort of thing. And I think that's far better, far better than to bring these shamans here. I mean, this is a meat grinder. It's horrible. You can't expect people to maintain their authenticity and put them up at the Beverly Hills Hotel. So basically, he's advocating against the idea of like exporting an ayahuasca shaman and making them like give white people ayahuasca here. He's like, yeah, we can just fucking do this with like pure chemicals. And oh, God, I, he would hate to see where the LA culture has gone now. Fuck. Oh, I know. And McKenna actually died right before the Ayahuasca tourism industry exploded, um, which we're going to talk about later as well. But I mean, Ott um, was a very, very influential figure who never had the same status as McKenna because he was more like doing the hard research, you know, even in going as far as inflicting himself with extremely painful, heroic dose experiences that no one else previous to Ott had even written about because There were crazy things to do. Like, for example, Jonathan Ott got obsessed for a point in his life in writing about or trying to discover the mechanism for shamanic tobacco experiences. Native Americans are most famously known for peyote, but initially, before the Mexicans brought peyote to the Native Americans in North America, North American continent, they were doing very high-dose tobacco psychedelic experiences. Doing things like covering in their entire body and wet tobacco leaves, and lying down in a mm-hmm, sweat lodges, yeah. yeah, like a sweat lodge, where the tobacco, the nicotine would go up, get absorbed through the skin, and put someone into a delirious, hallucinatory state. Jonathan Ott tried recreating some of these things to try to understand how the mechanism worked, and he even described, you know, and he was pretty old by this time; like he wasn't like a young, spry guy. So in the nineties. I think he was like already in his late 40s or maybe 50s by this time he was like trying to recreate native american tobacco shamanic experiences by soaking cigarettes in like water and making like a drink out of like a dozen <laughs> cigarettes to just see if Jesus. he could. i mean just insane stuff that almost sounds like trailer park level like crazy like earwood trip reports but this but he was so well respected that people were like, actually this is really interesting that he's you know, even though this sounds crazy, no one else is trying to recreate some of these things. So what I appreciated about Ott, I guess that I'm saying overall, is that he wasn't afraid to venture outside the outside the box or think outside the box. He was willing to try and do anything that seemed like a visionary experience that involved plants, even if it included like potentially you know, risking his own life to do so. I mean, he would even try different, like drugs that, for example, couldn't be snorted normally. He had discovered that a lot of those drugs, if you mix it with pure grain alcohol and snort the grain alcohol mixture, those drugs act, the mechanism worked as a snorting whoa, method. Whoa,
0: whoa, 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 What the fuck? Yeah. Snorting pure grain, what kind of drugs were activated by the pure
2: grain alcohol? Well, one, the drug that I remember him talking about the most was he did some really interesting experiments self-administered with Salvia divinorum which normally could only be smoked or used as a tincture where you have to hold it in your mouth uh you know like a like an alcohol tincture. He figured out that if you mix Salvia with like pure grain alcohol, salvinorin A, the active ingredient, that it actually passed through the mucous membranes and you could snort it.
0: Jesus Christ. And I
2: want to say, and I'm not 100% sure about this, but I do think Ott may have been the first person also su- to suggest um, enema based salvia use uh, as well, <laughs> which works. It, I, I haven't done it myself, but it works. I've read about it. There's actually several trip reports online about doing it. Um, so, you know, while McKenna was kind of misleading people into thinking he was still doing heroic doses, this guy Ott. Who would be like alongside McKenna's name on these speaking panels you know oftentimes they'd be out together on speaking panels um, coming from completely two different sort of mindsets this guy was actually doing the heroic doses and sometimes doing dangerous doses of things that no one had ever done before combinations of things sort of remaining largely underground for it but still being very well respected among like the hardcore thinkers in the psychedelic community
0: Jonathan Ott is a really fascinating character because he was doing really incredible like down in the the trenches. Like, you know, he was like risking his life, like mixing some of this shit. I mean, he didn't know ultimately what would happen if he tried to do like, you know, mimic the tobacco ritual from Native Americans or whatever. I mean, it's pretty crazy that he was doing all this stuff with little to no accolades. From outside, maybe a small subsect of the community, because you know Terence McKenna was completely mainstream. You look up his name, millions of hits on his lectures, because he was spellbinding in his brilliance and articulation. Ott was a genius, but as you mentioned, he was a trained chemist. So when you look through his articles and trip reports and stuff like that, it's a little hard to digest for the layman. So he was a very underrated guy because it was not easily translatable for people who didn't have that academic experience of chemistry, of understanding mm-hmm. these compounds, because really, like, you can read through some of his articles or interviews and it is a little hard to even translate what he's saying because it's so hyper-specific about these chemicals, but it doesn't detract from the incredible contributions to the movement. Yeah. Um. And the fact that he wrote hella fucking books, I mean, he wrote eight books co-authored five more. One of the books is a comprehensive encyclopedia of ethnogenic plants mm-hmm. um, that he described as these psychoactive substances that induce spiritual experiences, but he was also very humble and not at all on his high horse about ayahuasca. In fact, um, I don't know if he actually invented pharmawasca, but he certainly advocated for it Many many times, and I never even heard of the fact that you could take a pharmaceutical version of ayahuasca. Um, did he actually invent that?
2: Yeah, he did, and he and he was trying to figure out ways to make it essentially completely legal, um, minus the DMT. You know, DMT was universally scheduled everywhere worldwide. But his idea was, well, if you get like the, a DMT containing plant in combination with like a series of gel caps or pills that have an MAOI inhibitor in it um, the other ayahuasca alkaloids he called them then in theory you could essentially sell a product or market and this was not in any way to make money like he was not thinking like oh I'm going to make a business out of this to make profit he was just like what if we could make ayahuasca what if we could make ayahuasca (laughs) accessible to everybody and not just like a recipe online because that would be one thing but like an actual product that you could purchase and obtain that would be legal. You know, high potency root bark plant that has high concentration of DMT in it, plus a series of different alkaloids that are technically legal in wherever you live, like whatever area of the world you live in. That was his sort of vision. And I think it's a really interesting vision that frankly no one's ever executed on since he, he came up with this idea. So Jonathan Ott, um he's most known for pharma huasca or his study of ayahuasca, but he also was working on something called pharma yopo and also pharma shamanic tobacco experiences. He even talks about how he regularly uses nicotine nose spray that like shoots like ten milligrams of nicotine into his nose in like one spray. Um, and like a whole cigarette contains like two milligrams of nicotine, like a commercial cigarette. So he was actually, the, Jonathan Hop was one of the first people to describe the first instances of his, or people like witnessing Yopo use. Like he actually describes how Columbus actually witnessed Native Americans in South America using Yopo. And Yopo is a snuff. And a snuff is something you snort up your nose. So he was like hooked on this idea of just like why, you know, we're, we're actually too fixated on ayahuasca. The first accounts of, of DMT use was from Yopo, which is a snuff. So he became really fixated on that. I don't know of anybody who's really pushing this still. And to me, it's, it should be really pushed because why do you have to do something in a ritualistic setting or subject yourself to a very intense. Or you have to purge your entire bowels and st- and stomach yeah. contents. I mean, a lot of yeah, a lot I mean, of people totally... vomit on ayahuasca brews, and a lot of people have attested to the fact that when they take pure chemical psychedelics, like even psilocybin, you take pure psilocybin made in a lab um, or extracted pure from a psilocybin mushroom. A lot of people report that it's a much cleaner feeling experience, no nausea, a lot less physical side effects. So, I just think it's odd that the prevailing view still to this day, like twenty-five years after Ott conceived of this concept of pharmahuasca, is no the real way to do ayahuasca is to subject yourself to enormous amounts of pain and discomfort. I mean, it just well, it's it's the whole
0: colonized, it's the colonizer mentality of the ayahuasca stuff that we're going to get into in the next episode. It's like it's like feeling like you need to appropriate that indigenous, like spiritual. Vibe, And it's like, why, dude? Like, you don't need to go down to fucking Peru and, like, exploit this, like, indigenous culture to do, like, an ayahuasca journey. Like, just get a pill. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? Just man up, dude. You know, Terrence is, like, this viral figure. Ott is very underrated. Like, he barely has any hits on any of his shit online, which is very few things. He barely has any videos. He barely has any interviews. But... The ones that he does have are extremely interesting. Uh, for example, he has a sit-down interview with Albert Hoffman, of course, the guy who, who initially synthesized LSD that we talked about in the first episode, and, and it's a really captivating exchange between these two guys of a genuine, you know, this chemist who's just completely fascinated with with uh, these type of psychoactive substances and just getting a really raw and filtered, you know, conversation going between him and Hoffman is really interesting
4: experience, one is seeing the world direct, uh, naked, without concepts, without words.
5: Uh, I think I, it is very difficult to uh, to describe, uh, to, to put in words, the experience. I think it's impossible. Huxley mm-hmm. uh, said that we should uh, create new language for the mystical experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, I
4: sometimes describe it as seeing the world as energy as opposed to seeing the world as matter, that it's uh, not a materialistic experience, but it goes in
5: the direction of spirit or energy. What do you uh, think of that? Yes, energy always, uh, for me, is a bit technical. (laughs) (laughs) But As William Blake used the term, for Blake, energy was spirit spirit. Yes, yes. In uh, our energy is mainly a physical mm-hmm. thing, but yes, uh, there is, there is a, a vital force in we can say an universal consciousness, which you say um, is something like uh, energy. I don't like it very much. I um, <laughs> energy. But I would like uh, would say it is a universal consciousness and. I think uh, consciousness is one of the most, in, most uh, uh, meaningful worlds. Uh, consciousness is really, we are human beings because we have consciousness. And uh, it means that we have, are connected with the spiritual world, and the spiritual world, I would say, is universal consciousness.
4: Uh, also in your book on the use of LSD as an aid to meditation, um, this is more of the psychedelic therapy a, a deeper experience with a higher dose, or do you think that would also apply with more repeated lower doses?
5: No, I would say it is a higher dose. Higher dose. But this must be um, uh, very dangerous for every person who needs um, have a higher dose. for You need a very small amount rather than need a very high dosage to have the full experience, and uh, you. I think uh, this procedure would be that you give a medium dose first and see how its reaction is, and then you can decide, you can give then for after, uh, after preparation and every what you need for a good experience. Then you can the high, use the higher dose, And then you make yes. sure that
4: the person is, uh, reacts well to that, the compound. That, yes. What do you consider to be a medium dose and what would be a high dose? I would say a
5: medium dose is uh, 100 gamma. 100 and a high dose would say uh, 250. So. And a low uh, dose would be under 100. Yes, a yeah, low dose of 50. Fifty micrograms. Fifty.
4: And um, as I recall uh, with um, Sandoz Delicide, there were 25 microgram uh, pills, no? Yeah. And that was, uh, that was designed as a stimulant? Uh,
5: yes. As it an antidepressant uh, type of stimulant? Mm, mm, no. Mm. Yes, also. But it was uh, a little dose and you can Take three or four pills. Oh yes. yeah. Of you it mm-hmm. It's a lower dose.
4: And they were stable, these pills, so Oh, yes. I have this interview and and <laughs> it's quite interesting because Leary says in the interview uh, something like with a properly prepared LSD session, a woman invariably will have hundreds of orgasms <laughs> under the influence of LSD. And then the, the interviewer asked him twice and he wouldn't answer the question. Well, how about men? Can men have, uh, how many orgasms exactly, can a man have with exactly
5: LSD? Exactly these questions were in Hamburg,
4: or was it this interview? Also in the play where, and he wouldn't answer, He they answered him twice, and he, he changed the subject. <laughs> All he said was, well, I've made love every time I've taken LSD.
3: <laughs>
0: There's also another panel that, that Ott is doing where he brings up, basically he was saying, like, if our reality is based on matter, Right. And, and when we take psychedelics, we can see actually energy waves. And that really is what is reflected off the matter. Like we are seeing the energy. The energy is what's showing us what the matter is. So anyway, he just goes off into really interesting threads that um, that I found really fascinating. And I was really surprised at how little people had watched his material, I guess.
4: But whatever is out there that we like to think we're getting a faithful representation of, that is more, um, is more clearly um, described as energy than as matter in and of itself. So, um, let's go to the first point, um, that all we can see is energy. Uh, in point of fact, the, the way our sensory system works, is uh, the, the the lens in the iris, of the, uh, in the front of the eye, focus the rays of light, and uh, and the image is somehow formed on the retina in the back of the eye. I'm not going to talk about psychophysics, that's beyond this discussion, how that translates into some kind of a moving picture inside the mind, and, and that's not only beyond the scope of this discussion, it's beyond our knowledge uh, completely. And so, um, what is happening is the electromagnetic force uh, or electromagnetic energy is reflecting off of the very external surfaces of objects in the outside world and entering our eye. And that's what we're perceiving. The only way we can perceive it is because energy is entering our eye and exciting cells, photosensitive cells, on the back of the retina. If it weren't energy, we wouldn't be able to, to sense it. and so. Um, we cannot see the object itself. We can only see what is reflected off of it. And if there is no electromagnetic energy present, if there is no light, uh, what we call light is it's a small segment of the um, electromagnetic spectrum. But if it, there's none present, we are, as they say in Spanish, invidentes, we're non-seeing. And so if you've ever been in a deep cavern, um, and shut off any sources of uh, artificial light, you will experience this. There is no visual perception whatsoever. And so uh, it is energy that we are seeing, and only energy. And even if we're looking at a, an object, a, a luminous object that is emitting that energy, it's the same situation. We're seeing the energy itself, not the object that's, that's emitting it. And so, um, this is not uh, a new, or a novel concept, uh, or something um, extremely uh, original. The, the fact is now we can uh, put it in very precise terms, but in the fourth century before the modern era, in the, the famous uh, book, The Republic by Plato, in Athens, uh, 2400 years ago, um, the famous parable of the cave, And without intending to do so uh, uh, and, in a sense, talking about something else, um, and this would have been way beyond the state of of physical science of the day, Plato gave a very uh, adequate model or an analogical description of the physical phenomenon of seeing, of perceiving the center. In the Parable of the Cave, and he says it's as though we uh, human beings have always been confined inside a, a, a cavern and they're chained up and they can't leave it and they can't even turn around and they're, uh, they're facing this wall and there's a source of illumination behind them either uh, a fire or maybe the, the opening of the cave um, in, uh, in daylight and so all that they are perceiving are the shadows dancing on the wall in front of them, but they can't see what is ultimately causing those shadows. And so uh, that is a very satisfying description of the way we are perceiving reality. We're seeing specters, the only wavelengths of light that will reflect off of the object and come into our uh, uh, photosensitive retina, that is what we form the image uh, from. And so Plato had said that um, the 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 actual um, object itself, which is beyond our perception, he called ideas or archetypes. Um, and uh, some uh, let's see, almost 2,200 years later, um, uh, I don't know the precise date, around 1770, uh, Immanuel Kant uh, published. Uh, Critique de Praktischen Fernand, the critic of practical re- uh, critique of practical reason, and uh, there he conceptualized the same thing, and he said that the 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 essence that we couldn't see uh, was the the thing in itself, Ding an sich. We couldn't see that. We were only so we we're, we're experiencing specters, some kind of a, an image. We like to think that it's a faithful representation and i'm not going to go into the philosophy of solipsism either whether there really is something out there or not because all of this just takes place inside and the reality and the picture of it is inside the seeing happens in here not out there and uh of course you know if you, if you it doesn't pay to think that wall is not there and run into it um, i mean we have a lot of reasons to believe that this outside Reality is there and that uh, we get a faithful representation of it But the fact of the matter is we aren't seeing it itself We're, we have to have electromagnetic energy present It has to be uh, sufficiently intensive and it has to uh, reflect off of it and uh, impact these cells in our in our retina
0: Yeah, so Jonathan Ott hasn't really been heard from in recent years. Um, He actually had a pretty serious personal tragedy happen to him. He was living in Mexico and had a really cool farm and research lab. And sadly, someone burned it down. Uh, An arsonist burned down his whole house. He lost pretty much everything, including all the original books Hoffman gave him. And apparently, according to some sources online, they used those books to like spark the fire. And so he moved to Columbia. Um, I'm not sure if he's soliciting donations still. This was about 10 years ago, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure where he is now. But it was just kind of a sad note. Um, and I haven't really seen much of his stuff since. So,
2: Well, what's weird about that is some, there were some people who had some conspiracies about what happened here. Because I guess a couple of years before this, like a big portion of Terrence McKenna's library burnt down. Like the McKenna Legacy Library somewhere. And it was like a fire that was started in a Quiznos next door. I remember seeing, like, around this time these, these, like, both of these fires happened, there were some people, you know, just thinking, well, is the government trying to shut down, you know, psychedelic research? I mean, I did see those conspiracy theories floated around the time just because of how close together those fires happened. Wow. So Jonathan Ott, I think, gives a really sobering and pretty realistic viewpoint of psychedelics. He wasn't an advocate, like a universalist, utopianist advocate of psychedelics. Um, In an interview, he was asked, what are your preferred strategies of risk management when using ethnogens, and how is it possible to differ between them, just consuming and something like a ritual act? He says, well, basically, what you are taking is the first thing. And second, you have to control the situation where you are taking it. I'm not a real friend of taking visionary drugs in the city or going to a disco or a rock concert, unless it's a very low dose with something you already know and know how to dose. Paramount for me is controlling the setting. It is best in a comfortable and safe environment where you are not going to be exposed to some unknown contingency or people you don't know and you suddenly have to deal with. It is good at home or a rural place. These substances are not for everybody. Some people are not good candidates for something like LSD or mushrooms or ayahuasca. People that tend to be really nervous, high-strung, and very relaxed usually are not good candidates. These substances are not for everybody. They can be wonderful and life-changing for many people, but they can also hurt some people. And then the guy asks him, what about the difference between consuming and the ritual act? He says, a lot of people think they need contact with shamans from the Amazon. I don't think this is a good thing. It is not good for the shamans because in a lot of cases they don't want this contact and you get phony people that become tourist promoters. I try to foster a reason for shamanism to exist in the world today and I don't think tourism gives that. It favors more a Hollywood type of shamanism. A ritual does not have to be something from another culture. What people need to do is to develop rituals and have meaning for them in their own lives. It is just a question of seriousness and respect for the archaic nature and sacred nature. If you have that proper respect and a little bit of knowledge about it, well, that will change your attitudes towards it, and that will breath more of a realistic attitude toward taking it. It is a question of attitude and seriousness. If someone really respects it and takes it seriously, that is a ritual act by itself, and that is more important than drums and feathers and belts, and it is enough (laughs) ritual context. Not that there's anything wrong with taking this things just for fun. There is nothing modern or new about that. Shamans do the same thing and always have. So, I don't know, I think that's a really great and sort of down-to-earth way of sort of bringing this all down, where it's like, why does ritualism have to be copying an indigenous culture? Ritual should be something that is like fits your actual daily life and the meaning of your life. Like that is what ritual really means.
0: That's brilliant. Yeah, no, it's a perfect it's a perfect way to describe what we're going to get into with the next series about the ayahuasca. Yeah, I mean, he's
2: stuff. you know he was just he was talking about this in like the mid '90s before that industry exploded, um, and by the time mm-hmm. it did, you basically just have his worst fears materializing, and that is what it became. So one really interesting thing about how I think Jonathan Ott opened the door for like less scientific, less academic-minded people to be let into this world of thinkers. When I say let into this world of thinkers, I mean people who were merely psychonauts. Sometime in the mid-1990s, these worlds sort of collided where a fairly serious journal called the Ethnogen Review, that was published in the 90s, this little um, zine was also publishing writings of Jonathan Ott, other like scientific-minded people in the movement, botanists. The Ethnogen Review sometime in the mid-'90s actually started publishing trip reports and writings of a guy under the pen name D.M. Turner. Now, D.M. Turner is actually a man named Joe Vivian. And he has his own section on Erwid. He was actually one of the first people that I know of to write a book on Salvia Divinorum. That was how I first heard of him, was from his Salvia book. But his more famous book, and this is a book that's free online, you can find a PDF of it, you can find the whole thing on Irwood. it's called The Essential Psychedelic Guide. A book that I don't, you know, it seems really obvious maybe that other people had written books like this at the time, but they really hadn't. And basically, what the book did was it combined together... Like everything from McKenna, from Jonathan Ott, from even John Lilly, from all different psychedelic writers, authors, and thinkers into this context of being an end user, psychedelic user, taking heroic doses. So DM Turner essentially made a name for himself as being a writer who would only write about his breakthrough psychedelic experiences to the point where... You know, he would write extensively about different heroic doses he would take with LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, DMT. Uh, DM Turner, you know, wrote about doing extremely crazy heroic doses of all different types of psychedelic drugs. And his essential psychedelic guide was basically like a, a kind of a concise manual um, for people, you know, like a, a shorthand manual as a guide for people who are deciding to do heroic dosing and what options they had, just what happens on different dosages. And in a weird way, Abby, I feel like Irwood.org itself actually kind of was really inspired by his original book too. Like I didn't realize the timing that his book actually came out right before Irwood existed. I thought it was the other way around. I thought he was inspired, really inspired by Irwood, But in fact, actually he sort of inspired Irwood. Some of his original trip reports in this book read like some of the crazier trip reports you would read about on Erwid. Like for example, he was the first person I read that actually did LSD and ketamine together. He was the first person I read that did things like salvia and DMT together. And I'll just read you a trip report of him taking LSD and ketamine. And this is 350 micrograms of LSD plus like a full 100 milligram dose of ketamine.
0: Like what, like explain what's like an average dose of LSD?
2: Well, let's say an average dose back originally when LSD used to be very plentiful back in like the 60s, one hit or like one blotter or one sugar cube or whatever, like one hit would be carried on was usually no more than 100 micrograms. In the stronger cases, it could be like 150. Um, so basically what he's describing is taking like three hits of <laughs> acid or more. I mean with with an insane amount of ketamine. With an insane amount of ketamine. Just imagine any of those in and of themselves is very intense, but he's doing it in combination with each other. This would be a completely insane thing to do for anybody. I mean, even if you are an experienced psychedelic user. So DM Turner, in his book, The Essential. Psychedelic Guide, and the Psychedelic Essence of Salvia Divinorum. He actually did many experiments with combining DMT and Salvia together. Uh, 650 micrograms of Salvanorin A with 30 milligrams of DMT. And this is what he says in his trip report. Both the Salvia and DMT entities seem to have been taken entirely off guard and had not been expecting these confrontation. These entities seemingly paid no attention to me as their attention was entirely fixed on each other it soon became apparent that the two were going to do battle vying to determine who would have control of my consciousness soon (laughs) soon the salvia entity was running circles around me and had interpenetrated the dmt it was not a pretty scene to watch but salvia took the upper hand wow the visions I was seeing while watching this battle were severely distorted, smooshed, reversed, and turned sideways. All the favorite creatures of DMT Elfland were put together with the wrong body parts, or body parts in the wrong places. <laughs> Their normally gaudy outfits have been turned into white and brown plaid shins, and they were wearing brown leather shoes and carrying brown briefcases Millions of these miserable little creatures were frantically running around as door-to-door salesmen. They were moving perpendicular to everything else on the surface of their planet as though they were obeying a gravitational force that was at a 90-degree angle from everything in their surroundings.
0: Dude, that's the best trip report I've ever heard. That's wild stuff. And it really kind of goes back to, like, it doesn't tell you anything that your brain doesn't already know, and it's like, if the elves were of some sort of, like, alien consciousness or, like, higher being, like, that. what would explain this? Like, the fact that the Salvia
2: elves, like, ran them out and, like, made them born. It's amazing. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. But I guess what's really special to me about DM Turner is he brought all this very down-to-earth and made it seem like, why not do crazy psychedelic drug combinations? Um, You know, why shouldn't this be part of the the journey to reach these higher spiritual states through psychedelics. And in a way, I think he was really right in this. It's not that he was sort of taking a cue from Ott; He was also taking a cue from old school spiritualists in the United States, like the original New Age movement, if you want to call it, in the late 1800s in the U.S. um, You read about people experimenting with, with trying to achieve psychedelic states on drugs, even though mushrooms and LSD weren't around yet back in the 1800s. Drugs like hashish, belladonna, opium, laudanum, those were all around, and people were actually using those in combination. And it was actually normal for spiritualists to like, even some of them had recipes, you take this much hash with this much laudanum with this many like datura seeds together, and then stand in front of like a black mirror with a candle next to you in a darkened room. That would have been really fucking like psychedelic. I think and this is something that hippies and even the later like 90s the McKenna psychedelic people they shied away from the idea of combining these drugs together and I think they made them more about the individual drugs like these are almost like individual plant spirits to be revered rather than I guess what I'm trying to say is there was this box that people have put themselves in where DM Turner was sort of removing that box. Also, breaking down that barrier between like academic stuffy, even the way Ott would write about stuff, and like the normal end user psychonaut. They both had articles running in the Ethnogen Review, which was a pretty, you know, a magazine that was taken pretty seriously. So, I think this really brought it down to a certain level where this really opened the door for Irwood. And sadly, DM Turner um, was one of the first casualties of, uh, I guess you could call it a ketamine overdose. Um, DM Turner lived by himself, apparently, because his body was discovered, which is pretty gruesome to think about. It's horrifying. His gravestone lists the day his body was discovered rather than the actual date of his death. Um, So sad. And here's what's disturbing. He was discovered on the 24th of January, and he actually technically died on the 1st of January. Oh. In the bathtub, too. So I don't want to... Make, I don't no. want to bring anybody downer, but it's I mean. so sad.
0: But it's so sad that no one else thought to check on him.
2: Well, I know that. I mean, it just shows to show that some of these people were just kind of loners and yeah. they made a whole name for themselves and they led almost like a double life on the internet and through right. their pseudonym writings. And his death caused a lot of people in the psychedelic community to think ketamine was bad, was a bad psychedelic. And I think, again, this sort of pushed further this wedge between the natural and synthetic drugs. Like synthetic drugs were more bad, you know, and then these um, natural psychedelics were more good and ketamine kind of kept getting pushed more and more to that side of being like a dark synthetic drug that people could die from. And I don't know exactly what happened to him, but from what I have heard, he did an injected ketamine experience in the bathtub, which a lot of people I guess, would do at this time still because... That sounds so scary. Well, when you're by yourself and you don't have anybody to check on you, it is pretty irresponsible. I mean, John Lilly did ketamine in an isolation tank, you know, and I think a lot of these people yeah. were maybe trying to recreate some variation of that. But what, what basically what happened is people say that he stood up to try to get out of the tub and fainted. Um, so it was actually Oof. like the blood rushing to his head too fast that caused him to faint in the tub. So he drowned um, on January 1st, 1987. And of course, you know, the fact that he was writing about doing these crazy psychedelic drug combinations already made him, as according to Irwin, both lionized and criticized within the underground psychedelic community. For me, I was more like lionization. It's like this guy is doing crazier shit than anybody else. Like, this is amazing but of course him dying probably just sort of it just made those people who were criticizing him feel, you know, like yeah, this is what happens. Like he was irresponsible. Like but yeah, he was also one of the first people to write a book about Salvia and he wrote it in 1996. Sad sad story, but, you know, you know, you are self-administering drugs and you are taking heroic doses in combination with other drugs and you're doing it by yourself. So I think one takeaway from here is if you're doing these kind of things don't do them by yourself or at least have somebody to come and check on you. That's something I think we should all <laughs> take heed from that when you do heroic doses, even though oftentimes the experience, it's important for you to be by yourself to have that full immersion for, during the peak experience. You are, you know, drugs like ketamine do can, can cause physical side effects and you know, you do need to make sure that you're physically okay. It, it, it's like you wouldn't, get really, really blackout drunk by yourself. You know, even that sounds dangerous. You know what I mean? Well,
0: even like, yeah, like when Dolores O'Riordan like drank too much and then just passed out in the tub and died. It's like, exactly. it's just, it's just crazy. It's like crazy that anything can do that to you, let alone something as powerful as ketamine and doing that shit while you're laying in a body of water without anyone knowing, I think is highly irresponsible. And I mean, I, I hate to say that, but it is, it's just really sad.
2: You know, like McKenna, he also didn't talk about the negatives of psychedelics, really. This is the negative of psychedelics, the yeah. way that he died.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Impossible to separate that from his work. And maybe I'll just, I, I could just briefly describe, um, you know, ketamine experiences that I've had. Because for people who don't know what it's like, it is a disassociative anesthetic that is given still in surgery and in veterinary. Like, it's its mostly given out in veterinary offices, um, it doesn't depress the respiratory system like other anesthetics do. So it's considered safer for children, it's considered safer for smaller animals. Yeah, the ketamine experience is very different from other psychedelic drugs in the sense that it doesn't give most people open eye hallucinations. It's not the type of drug where you go out in, in nature and stare at the sunset to get like hallucinations or visuals. When you hear people describing ketamine hallucinations, they're likely talking about internal closed-eye visuals, two whole different styles of hallucinations that different kind of psychedelic drugs enhance. But for me personally, ketamine is a very internal closed-eye hallucinatory drug where it doesn't just give you like dreamlike imagery. People describe nodding off on different opioids where you sort of have these little glimpses of dreams as you're going in and out. This is different where it's more like almost like a internal world that you sort of get sucked into that feels like you're sort of on the cusp of some kind of dream space that is not colorful but is also very very immersive. It's it's very hard to describe, but one way I would describe it for people is imagine like a 3D game engine, like a 3D video game where the light is very very low like imagine if like the lighting engine is turned off but you can somehow still see all of the 3d detail of everything and that's my been my personal unique experience on ketamine when i've had very strong hallucinatory experiences as i've actually had what i guess would be described as almost like dreamlike imagery where i'm floating through a scene an environment that is very very detailed but also like very dark Almost like a feeling of flying through actual, like a dark outer space where you're looking at like dark matter structures of like high exquisite detail, like gigantic spaceships that are like 40 miles long that that look like um, insane cityscapes, you know, like shit Mm -hmm. like that. As I've seen on ketamine that I have not experienced on other psychedelics at all where you can just sort of sit there and look and pour over the detail almost like an amazement like how is my brain making this Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've had a lot of that kind of experience on ketamine where it feels almost like impossible that my brain is able to generate you sort of maintain a level of almost like your conscious brain like a lu- like a mini lucid dreaming kind of a effect I don't know if you've what your experiences have been like, Abby, but that's probably like, you know, some of my coolest experiences have been like that.
0: Well, I remember when I first did it, um, you told me to do it in the dark and you told me to just do it laying down in the dark. And I did have a very similar experience, except way like less intense and way less detailed. So yeah, I mean, it. it I just remember it being really cool, feeling like you're flying through kind of a similar universe but it definitely wasn't highly detail oriented like that it was just more kind of psychedelic feeling but um that
2: was the one and only time that I had done like a dose like that and did it and you've also done dxm before right like did that compare did it how did it compare for you
0: well (laughs) I did dxm when I was just like a dumbass in high school and I just like went out like to like a Denny's Oh my god With my friends Yeah and I was just I just remember Everything was delayed 10 seconds Like I remember Dropping a giant glass Of like coke And then like 20 seconds later I was like It like all happened In like an extreme delay
2: (laughs) Oh my god
0: (laughs) Yeah I mean It was just that kind of It was just really Really weird So I can't even compare The two experiences Because it was just So different I mean I would have Loved to try it When it was actually Intended for Like in the dark You know
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Like really fully Get the visuals But Yeah, I mean one of the most intense experiences I've ever had was taking and mom's not going to like hearing this but taking ketamine in combination with LSD like I didn't do as nearly as high of a dose as what DM Turner did but I did a high enough dose where I fully like ripped myself inside out psychologically total disintegration I thought I became like there was even a crazy part of it where my roommate Joey had his pug staying with us for like a week and I could hear his little gruntings throughout the house all the time. <laughs> and while I was tripping, I must have been hearing them, you know, just like in the, like, you know, at the corner of my ear. My entire trip became defined <laughs> by, I all of a sudden became him. I turned into him, lying down on my bed by myself, and I felt his like... The pain of his respiratory system, like whatever makes him <laughs> snort, like I became that animal. I could feel the physicality of like struggling to breathe and like walk with these little stubby legs. It was extremely fucking intense. Yeah, it was it was crazy. And I do think you you have to be really careful uh, with psychedelics, especially if you're not in a great place in your life. If you're already having a lot of other, you know depression different feelings like that it's probably not the best time to do psychedelics so that's why i'm nervous or worried when i see a lot of this increasing trend in the more you know the modern world of psychedelic utopianism and mainstreamification of like saying that psychedelics cure depression i don't personally think that that's a wise message to in terms of to creating progress with the psychedelic movement I think that it's misleading and I think that it's potentially harmful. But I think there's a lot more people recently who have experiences with psychedelics who maybe even used to be more utopianist who are coming out of the woodwork now saying like, no, actually, look like this, you know, we got to talk about some of the bad sides of all this stuff. And some of like the problematic figures and you know, and trends in the movement. I mean, not all this stuff is great, you know.
0: Well, that's the problem is because of the stigmatization and yeah. the demonization and the criminalization, there is a tendency to be this reflexive, positive enforcement. Everything that's good about it, why we should decriminalize it, why we should legalize these things. And you you kind of do want to paper over the negative things that could reinforce all the the bad dogma and the mythology surrounding these psychedelics because you do want to encourage people to try them. You know, I think the, the problem is that Because it's such a relatively unknown thing and because of the criminalization of it, we don't understand that or a lot of people don't take away from it that like a lot of this is in moderation is like the clause that should always be put, uh, you know, at the end of when you're when you're suggesting that people should use these things or talking about the potential benefits of them. It always is in moderation or specified to a particular individual's case. So it's not even that you are trigger or have family history of psychosis or whatever. It could be completely random. And that's where it gets into the realm of kind of treacherous terrain.
2: Applying the model of we need to swing the pendulum in the other direction and be just hyper-positive about these drugs because of the way they've been stigmatized is part of the rationale for why McKenna probably operated someone in the way that he did. I can understand it. But again... We saw that model being used with ma- marijuana, like legalization advocates. hyper-positive, you know, sh- sh- trying to swing the pendulum so strong in the other direction. The, the thing about marijuana is that it isn't dangerous, really in any way. Maybe there's some people who can get triggered to, into psychosis from it. We don't really know what the linkage is between marijuana and mental illness, if any. It seems relatively benign. I mean, most it's pretty benign drug. You can't take that same model and just apply it to psychedelics because psychedelics are not benign they're very very powerful and some of them can also be dangerous and cause people to do reckless things and not think and you need people around you there's a lot of precautions you need to take with psychedelics and that is something that is not emphasized enough now and i think that we're starting to enter a new era where we're just starting to see more and more of that glossing over and more people just trying to take that hyper-positive approach. Well, especially because they're so
0: different from each other, too. It's like a lot of these people are talking about, you know, when we're talking about MAPS research, which we'll talk about in the next episode, a lot of it's focused on MDMA, completely different drug than DMT, completely different drug than ketamine, you know, and completely different drug than acid and psilocybin. It's like you cannot lump psychedelics together and generalize them or anything. I mean, they're, it, it's... It's a very complicated topic that deserves a lot of nuance and explanation and sifting through all of these things. And hopefully, as these compounds are decriminalized and accepted more and more in the mainstream, this conversation will open up with the good and the bad about them.
2: Yeah. And I also think that there's people need to go into this with their expectations, I think, different than how they typically do because I remember feeling almost like I was inferior not just because I couldn't do heroic doses as smoothly as I thought imagine McKenna doing them but because I actually remember tripping much harder than some of my friends who would take like the same dosages of psychedelics and feeling like maybe I just can't handle my shit or you know being made to feel like because like certain very intense experiences I had with like ego loss that were so intense and so difficult that that was just because like, I wasn't mentally strong enough or something. And even just things like getting nausea, Mm -hmm. you'll find out that some of these maybe more utopian psychedelic people in the movement, I've talked to them firsthand and they'll be like, oh yeah, I never get nausea. I've never had like any nausea from any psychedelic experience. And it's like, well, fucking good for you, dude. Like- Yeah, right. Let's just say I'm envious of that. And it also kind of explains your utopianist worldview. You're basing it off of your own firsthand experience and not listening maybe to other people who are like, yeah, like I get nausea from this and it's not. Oh, and then even some of those people will get a little arrogant about it. They'll be like, well, you know, nausea is caused by like a psychological thing when you're on psychedelics, so you get nauseous. And I'm like, "Mm, I feel like that's kind of you throwing shade a little bit and acting like, again, that you're just stronger minded and that people who get nauseous on psychedelics are somehow more fragile or something. There is sort of a, little bit of like a a pissing contest nature to it rather than something that feels more vulnerable and like accepting of all types of people's experiences. And that's, you know, and again, that's like a thread that bothers me as we continue to talk about this.
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely.
2: That concludes episode three of our series on psychedelics. If you'd like to continue listening to this series and check out part four Become a subscriber to Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. On episode four, we go into the internet era of psychedelic drugs. We discuss the origins of Arrowhead and the obscure figure who is behind funding most of the early and influential psychedelic institutions like MAPS, DanceSafe, and the Hefner Institute, Microsoft employee Number nine, this figure arguably kick-started a new psychedelic revolution and helped level the playing field of psychedelic drug knowledge, the new availability of legal psychedelic drugs, and even over-the-counter psychedelic drugs that could be purchased at drugstores in the U.S. And just as a side note, if you haven't heard me go into my own DMT experience before, you can hear that in the Freemasonic History of the United States, Part 6. At the very end of that episode. Thanks for listening, everybody.
1: Geometric compressionism, or morphogenetic compressionism, or psychedelic compressionism, depending on which one of us is talking, I'm sure you can figure out who is who. But the idea is drawing together that a new phenomenon has been discovered in the universe, which is. It's drawing togetherness, its tendency toward cohesion, its tendency to move toward greater and greater states of wholeness, and not incrementally, but in sudden, highly punctuated stages that allow phenomena like history or the 20th century uh, to come into being. These are. great leaps forward toward this cohesion that nature pushes toward and as i said i don't think that it's uh, millions of years in the future i think this millions of years in the future stuff was a very brief phase in scientific discourse and that as organisms what we need to come to terms with is the the chaos the turbulence the turmoil the ephemerality And the the high-stakes nature of the game, you know, even if no asteroid strikes the Earth, each one of us in this room will die. And so, life is guaranteed to be interesting, uh, even if you don't live in one of these epochs when there is uh, asteroidal impact or geomagnetic reversal, nevertheless, uh, the ultimate challenge is built into the biological script. We, we each have our own apocalypse and so I think we should live life in anticipation.